think for Americans, it, it, it's hard to grasp the fact that your country is in threat of not existing anymore. Mm-hmm. That the place that you were born to, the place that you are connected, like that your where your ancestors have been buried for thousands of years, that all of a sudden you don't have access to that anymore. All of a sudden you are not allowed to go there anymore. That that is not yours anymore. This is Unconditioning, Discovering the Voice Within, with Whitney Ann Jenkins. Hello, welcome to the fourth episode of Unconditioning, Discovering the Voice Within, where I bring on guests and we talk about the inner authentic voice and the challenges and the rewards that come from following it. And on this episode, I have with me sisters, Inga and Sona Stamboltian, and uh, we're talking about the authentic Armenian voice. I met Inga a few years ago through a mutual friend of ours, and she is Armenian. And through the blossoming of our friendship, I've not only learned a lot about Inga, but because she is Armenian, I've learned a lot about the Armenian culture. And to be honest, I knew very little about the Armenian culture before knowing her. And she's introduced me and opened doors for me and opened my eyes to things in so many ways. I went to see her in a play where she played Frida Kahlo and it was performed in the Armenian language, which blew my mind. I never experienced anything like that before. And she also introduced me to Vahik an Armenian actor, a director, a comedian, a writer who is very well known in the Armenian community. And um, he put me in his film, Tenny, which is a film based on the Armenian American experience. And that was a really unique experience for me being on set, especially being one of the few, if not only, cast members who spoke no Armenian at all. And just being on set, I was able to be surrounded by these people who hold such a reverence for their culture. And through that experience, I met Sona, who is Inga's sister, and she was the AD, the assistant director on the film, and also the line producer. And she has such a deep love for Armenia. Like, it it comes out of her pores in everything that she does. And not only that, but she's amazing at her job. I don't know how that film would have gotten completed without her. So Tenny went on to have a theatrical release in Los Angeles for about three weeks, and now it's available on Amazon Prime. But that's not the reason why I have them on this podcast. There's a lot going on in Armenia right now. Um, It's been happening for several months, and... There's a war going on, and the news is not accurately reporting what is actually happening in Armenia. And so after talking to Inga and Soda about what's going on, I really wanted to give them a platform to express what is happening to their culture, to their roots, to their family, to their ancestral line. When things are not being reported as... They are really happening. It's really important to amplify their voices right now. It's so important 
to give them a place where they can share their experience of being Armenian and not only just Armenian, but Armenian American and not feeling that their voices are being heard. So this conversation is a little long, but I think every single moment is super important and valid. And I wanted to give them the proper time to express everything that they needed to express. There's a lot of information in this episode. There's a lot of history, which Sona is so knowledgeable and has such wisdom about. There's the analysis of what is currently happening there. And there is a lot of discussion about uh, the emotional processing of what it's like to have your entire culture and the history of your existence threatened and being wiped out. So I hope that you take some time to listen to this and give some thought and take some action if you feel so inspired. The news and the media is not giving this the appropriate recognition that it deserves. So here is Sona and Inga Stembultian. My parents thought that I was going to be like an ice skater, so they took me to ice skating classes. After the first introductory ice skating class, I was like, everybody's all racing around and I'm by myself going like tuck tuck trying to stay you know vertical (laughs) (laughs) and then they were after after like six months they were like oh she can't skate all she can do is maybe rollerblade without falling down that's fine that's all we need Uh, (laughs) that was the end of it that was it so my dad after probably perhaps after that experience was like I was like hey dad I want to I want to go to gymnastics Oh no, you're six years old. It's way too late for you. You're supposed to start at three. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wanted to take gymnastics and my mom wouldn't let me. Yeah. <laughs> she what? said, Yeah, my mom wouldn't let me take gymnastics because she said that when I got older, I would get fat because I wasn't going to be using the same muscles. Oh, that's interesting because my dad told me that I couldn't go to karate and that if I wanted to, maybe I can go to gymnastics because if I was going to karate, then I would start looking like a boy who wants boy muscles. I was like, there's such thing as boy muscles and girl muscles. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. But anytime yeah, my no. dad didn't want us to send us to something, we were like, hey, dad, can I go, you know, I don't know, like, can I take a like ballroom dancing oh yeah no it's too late for you you can't be a uh, olympic sports medalist you're you're nine people start at two you didn't start at two so no sorry you can't it's too late for you i'm like but but this i'm nine <laughs> that's too late you can't be a gold medalist so why try why do it anyway it's just a waste of time <laughs> yeah i remember that i remember like watching ballroom dancing and i was in high school and i was still doing like dancing and stuff and i was like oh i want to go and i would love to do that and my dad was like you're too old. It's too you're way old. too old. Yeah, you're 15. You're 15. Your muscles have developed prime. already. <laughs> you are done. You are geriatric. You are a geriatric dancer. Yeah, the yeah, most yeah. that you can accomplish yeah. Is, yeah. is just, you know what I mean? Like yeah. a regional thing at your community college. Yeah. Like that's He's it. Like, wow. at, at the next wedding, at the next wedding, you show your dancing the mom at the wedding. <laughs> so, so, oh, and the weird thing yeah. is, is that like, at 16, 17, I, uh, like I was in the dance program at, at, at high school and um, I went and I danced professionally with like a professional dance group, troupe. Uh, it was like the Klezmers and they did a thing where they took high school students to dance with them. 
And I, I went in and I danced with them and I was asking them, so when did you guys get started dancing? I'm expecting they're like, oh, I started five, when I was five. And they're like, oh, no, we started when we were about your age in high school. And I was like, oh, there's still hope. I got all excited, <laughs> went home, and my dad was like, nope, they're no. lying to you, darling. No, 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 no. They started at You six. should have started when you were three. Yeah. And I was like, why didn't I start when I was three? <laughs> Dad, I know, I love it. My dad's excuse was always, you should have started when you were three. I wasn't making decisions when I was three, by the way, father. <laughs> Nicely way of saying, no, honey, you don't have any talent and we don't want to put any money into something. <laughs> that was his kindest way that he could say, look what happened when we put you in piano. She went from like maybe four classes and barely learned where the fingers were. And it's kind of like, no, her fingers are too small. She's not advanced yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's funny. So how did he become accepting of you doing theater and film? Were you too old for that? I just forced him to. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, I'm doing it. Yeah. No, I think that's the same thing with me. No, uh, my dad also had, uh, uh, when he was younger, our age, he had, um, like, he had film equipment in Armenia, in Soviet times, which is very rare, because me and Inga, we still, we have um, baby pictures, because our our dad had a camera, and he had a lab that he would develop the pictures at. Um, A lot of people from our generation don't have any of that, um, because they didn't have parents. Um, that could afford to it. A lot of pictures were only taken at the studio when you took it, you know, when you got married, when the baby was just born and like once a year, you would go take a phone, like a formal photo. Um, so he had that. He also had like a super eight camera, which I inherited um, and all the lenses and I still have it actually. Um, so he, when he saw me going into that field and it, it was kind of like, I'm doing this, this is it. This is what I choose. And then that's when he was kind of like, oh, okay, you did inherit some artistic things from me. So go yeah. on, you know, yeah. I'll allow it. <laughs> yeah, following yeah. In yeah, and fair, it doesn't hurt that, huh? I said, to be fair, you did go to art for a million years, which was, that was your thing. That was, and that was the thing that you would share with yeah. him too. That was, that was yeah. where your talents were, both of your talents. Now, I mean, I went, I didn't, they were like, yeah, Inga, I mean, we'll babysit her, but she's not going to be turn an artist. She's not going to become an artist. So stop bringing her or she's not going to advance. So I stopped going. They try. They, after Inga, I, I, no, I they pay. want <laughs> it's not because you didn't have talent it's because it was enough, it was double the price for you to go but um i think yeah that's why dad was okay because you were uh taking an interest in one of his interests and which was film so yeah. I, I yeah yeah i think that's that was it and i started more from the photography aspect of it because i did mm-hmm. um journalism for a while and i was very much interested in in photojournalism so i was looking at and and you know, uh, going with the photojournalist, how do you capture the scene and everything else and composition. So I was interested in that. And then um, I did like a student exchange where I was like, if I'm going to be a journalist, I need to go into broadcast because that's when the change ever was happening from French journalism to online journalism and kind mm-hmm. of like print journalism was dying. So I was like, okay, I need another avenue for journalism. Um, so I was like, okay, broadcast. I went and I took a couple of TV courses and I was all like, screw journalism. <laughs> My true passion is film. That's <laughs> and cool. it was kind of that. like, yeah, no, um, I went in uh, on a student exchange to New Orleans and the television teacher there kind of like pulled me aside and she was like, there's a, an assistant directing program. You um, 
like are naturally a, a an assistant director, like an AD. Yeah. Um, you're naturally a, a producer and stuff, so you need to go into that route. That is where you're not. And, and she didn't do that to everybody. That's for sure. Like she kind of like pulled me aside and said, "You're naturally good at this, so you need to pursue this." Um, mm-hmm. And that was only for selfish reasons in that class because I wanted to negotiate the days off um, so that I can enjoy New Orleans. So I would go and negotiate with her, like, so when can we have this test? And does it have to be on the Monday after a really good weekend? Mm-hmm. Why can't we have it on a Friday so that we, the weekend's free for us? So I did that a few times on behalf of the class. And um, we got to enjoy Halloween because I negotiated for it. <laughs> How old were you at that time? I was 21. I had just turned 21. Like, I turned 21, and, like, two weeks later, my, my dad was like, there you go. You're in New Orleans. Clap. Bye. And, um, yeah. Interesting. I was there. And then um, I took that one broadcasting television uh, class. And the teacher was like, you need to go in a different direction. So I pretty much took all of the film and directing and production classes I could at, the, at that university and then came back and then changed my uh, major. And got a husband out of it. Oh. Yeah, that too. You know, he was in my classes. I met him in my classes. In New Orleans? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nolens. He was in, in New Orleans. He was in my first broadcasting class. Wow. And then he was in my other film classes. So it's kind like, of like the yeah. beginning of our relationship is documented on a student project. It sounds like a very transformational time in your life, knowing what you want to do <laughs> as a career and also yeah. meeting the person that you're going to spend the rest of your life with it's um like it's one of those like cataclysmic or cataclysmic events in your life where it's like it totally changes the the trajectory of everything and changes your entire perception up until that time up until you know age 21 um our community was very very sheltering of girls like you did not leave you if you left you had to be engaged you or you were marrying off and at that time there was like me and Inga went to so many weddings from like 18 to 23 because everybody was getting married off right away um I had as soon as I turned 18 or right before I turned 18 people were already commenting that it was time to marry me off and my parents were like no not yet no um but that was the thing and um, you didn't let your child go by themselves to a different state to study and you didn't let them especially a girl how could you um, so then my dad allowing was just this radical thing in, in the family I remember my aunt talking to him like how the hell are you allowing your daughter you know to go and because you can't watch over her there's going to be boys around there and you can't control her so yeah. how can you allow that? And, and my dad was kind of like, well, I want her to, to fend for herself for a little bit. And this is the safest environment for her to do that. So, yeah, that was it. And then I went and I changed my, you know, focus. And I met a husband, <laughs> you know, yeah, <laughs> came back <laughs> with red hair, with red highlights, a nose ring and stuff. I remember like one of the counselors saying like after she saw me uh, after the three month mark, She's like, I really need to do a before and after pictures of people and how they change. <laughs> because of like when they first come and like three months later, because <laughs> I was completely different. That's funny. 
Um, yeah, so, so can we go back to a little bit before that, when your family first arrived from Armenia? Um, just because of everything mm -hmm. that is happening there. Even me and, and my heritage, like it's all uh, Italian and in Swedish and Polish and I'm German and Welsh. And so I don't have like okay. a true connection very authentically to a culture in the way that you guys do. And with so much happening over there right now, I kind of want to like go back to the roots of it so people can really understand what it's like to be part okay. of the Armenian culture. And how it was like for you to transition from there and come to America. Um, okay, so let me tell you a few things about like Armenians that I just found out. Not just, but like very recently. Um, so we've, we're indigenous to the Armenian Highlands, which is right now in eastern Turkey, in that area. And we've been genetically isolated since the Bronze Age. Like our DNA and stuff does not correspond with any of the DNA around our neighbors. There's some intermixing, but there's almost none. And Armenians have no um, Asiatic DNA in us. So when Genghis Khan came through and stuff, we were still isolated. And we continue to be isolated for like 2,000 years. So our thing is, is that Armenians are only with Armenians. And we have to, you know, preserve our language, our culture, and our religion is part of that. So that that kind of preserves it so that inclusivity that connectiveness is kind of ingrained in us and our in our dna armenians uh, don't mix um another thing is is because we had the the genocide at the um during world war one where we were nearly again annihilated and wiped out and in order to preserve the culture we had to continue to date within and marry within to continue on. Otherwise we would be diluted and, and gone. And that's like the mentality that we, me and Inga grew up with. Like I heard that all the time, like from adults, like you, you grow up, you only marry Armenians, you do that so that, you know, we were almost wiped out and you have to continue on doing that. But that's has been something that has been a cultural thing for us for like millennia now. So, um, so growing up in that community um, where it is very, very much important to keep the language, the culture, and everything else. But during Soviet times, there was lots of difficulties financial. Um, there was difficulties politically for our family as well. Um, we were being monitored because we had relatives in America. So there, it wasn't as hospitable for us as possible. So my parents left, and they were refugees. Um, from the Soviets. And I remember as little kids, we had to go to Moscow to get permission to leave the Soviet. And, and meaning I had to go into the interview as a family. And I remember them asking, like, what does my dad do? What is his job? What are they doing? And they asked me as well, like, what does your dad do? And at that time, my dad was working as a security guard in a, by a factory. And that's what they were saying that he was. Um, and then my mom, um, she had learned English and she was an English teacher um, for people who were immigrating or just needed to know the English language. So we went through Moscow, got permission to leave, and then um, we weren't allowed to file for like refugee status or any of the paperwork or anything like that until we were officially outside of the Soviet. So we left the Soviet Union and we landed in Italy. And in Italy from there, there was um, several refugee families that were also fleeing, and we were met with like American representatives 
I vaguely remember it, and we went, we would go in and um, apply for a refugee. And that process usually took three, one to three months. We were only there for three weeks and for two and a half weeks because of Inga, because Inga was so freaking cute and adorable <laughs> that when we went into, I'm serious, this is like an actual thing that happened. Well, nothing, nothing has changed. <laughs> <laughs> she was so cute and adorable and she was very much a social butterfly. She would go to other people and be like, hi, you know, I'm Inga. <laughs> How, how old were you at so she, this time? How old were you and Inga at this time? I was seven and Inga was three. Um, so I wasn't that cute anymore. I was just, I was not going to sway anybody. <laughs> uh, Inga, Inga was the one that was going to charm people. I was just there. So Inga kind of charmed the person that was doing the paperwork. So that person pushed our family to the front of the line. And we took some other family's place that had been waiting and they had to wait another month for their Aww. paperwork to come through. And that's because of Inga. So uh, I just remember it being a very, very long time and we were in Rome and we didn't know the culture or any of the food. The other day, I just remember that the first time we ever saw scaffolding was in Italy and, and like because they were working on a building and the facade was covered in plastic. And that was like the first time that my dad had ever seen it. And he was 37 at the time and he was just marveling at like oh western technologies like oh my god it makes so much more sense like some of the stuff that was happening and it was a bit of a culture shock for them as well for us so two and a half months later we came to america and that was around thanksgiving-ish and we were we spent the first thanksgiving at my father's brother's house and yeah and we were considered uh, refugees from the Soviet Union. Okay. Do you remember what you felt when you first arrived um, in America? I was so glad not to eat, have pasta for every meal of the day. <laughs> I don't remember any of this stuff. Just talking uh, I, we had so much pasta in Italy <laughs> because it was like the food and stuff was provided. But it was like pasta with sauce pasta with tomato soup, pasta <laughs> in the morning, in the afternoon, in the, for dinner, the and, it's like, <laughs> and it was like, because you had to, to walk to the different hotel, so by the time you got there, it was like, okay, you had lunch, and then by the time you walked back, it was time for dinner, and then you had to walk back. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a And I remember time. asking my mom, like, I don't want to have pasta for a while anymore. <laughs> Um, I just remember being relieved that we're with, like, finally, we're with family that, you know what I mean, that grow up hearing myths about because we hadn't really seen them because it was a family in America. But then after that, it was like a, a lot of it is very new, but it wasn't, I don't remember too much at the beginning, few months or anything like that. It's kind of like blocked it out because it was still traumatic. I remember traumatic, my parents... Yeah. Um, trying to call back then phone calls were like there's no zoom we don't see each other and it was the soviet block at the time so you it was like to get connected and there was a big echo and you'll notice that too a lot of the older armenians when they talk on the phone and you tell them that you're talking to armenia or you're talking to somewhere else like far away they'll start like yelling at yelling. the phone yeah because that was the only way that you could hear and i remember like 
each minute was like $5 and $5 in the late eighties was a lot of money, especially for a newly immigrated. And you would only be connected for maybe five minutes at maximum. And it was kind of like, hello, hello. And there was an echo because of course it was being recorded. It's a phone call from America. Um, and there was a lot of like, we're alive. Hello, are you alive? Yes, we're alive. We love you. And then it was it was pretty much that. And I just remember how traumatic it was for my parents because they were so cut off, so isolated. There wasn't other Armenian families. There was no community. There was no church. There was one store, one Armenian store. And it was surreal. We were the only Armenian family in the building for a while. And there was like maybe one other family that came after us. And um, there wasn't any kids to play around with. And the way that Armenia is, is that each uh, neighborhood or cul-de-sac, like the buildings were built like in a little cul-de-sac type of way where all the kids from those buildings would go down and play around. And it was in a safer area. It wasn't like in the street or anything like that. It was, kind of like a controlled yard yeah yeah playground yard area just the communal yard area so we were used to that for like you know having 20 30 kids around just playing to having no kids around and it was just me and Inga and our cousins were a lot older than us they were 14 years 12 years and 10 years older than us so they were like teenagers when we first came yeah did you guys so it's like directly to Los Angeles when you moved? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We we flew straight to LAX. And our um I remember our uncle meeting us right at the gate as we were coming out out of the airplane and then walking with us through the terminal. Back then you could do that. You just can't do that mm-hmm. now. <laughs> um yeah. simpler times. So. Yeah, Inga, do you remember anything being 3 years old? Yes, I remember a few, very few things. Um, I do remember the trauma of leaving uh, and saying goodbye and feeling like uh, they had to tear me away from my grandmother's arms. Very, very, like, very attached to my grandmother. Uh, She lived with us. Yeah, and she lived with us uh, and she raised me. So everybody was crying and I just... I remember um, a lot of people tell me moments, and so now I don't know if those are my memories or because of you know it's been it's been told. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do remember uh, the train, like because we had to go on a train, uh, and that moment of leaving to go on the train was so traumatic. I just remember I was a crier. I cried for everything, and I just remember uh crying um i remember the doors that they were talking about like the slide doors remember sis? that was at the custom that was at customs. there's a lot of firsts <laughs> that some people take yeah. uh for granted like the first time i remember the first time we ever had bananas because my dad yeah. brought it from moscow on, on from a business trip i remember the first time we had a coconut again my dad brought it and you know he had to use a, a, a drill to, to be able mm-hmm. to, to, to cut into it um, I remember the first time we saw automatic doors, which was in Moscow at the time. Yeah. And it was. was through the terminals to go to um, the airport. Oh, and, you, and then um, over there, you had to go through customs to exit. So anything that you were taking with you had to be approved. And so you, you know, my parents took um, a few bottles of cognac as a bribe. 
um, but a lot of their jewelry, a lot of the stuff that could be sold off were not was not allowed to leave. So um, they couldn't even take their wedding bands. Like their mm-hmm. wedding bands had to be left behind, and that's also another Nothing reason why you had some. Nothing of value leave uh, the the country because they felt that you were taking the riches out of the country. So if you wanted to leave, that meant you had to leave all of your valuables. Um, so when you came here, you really not only did you not come here with anything, but you didn't come here with anything to sell to to make money, or to have. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of family heirlooms uh, uh, we didn't get to keep or have uh, were left behind, were sold off during um, the fall of the uh, USSR because there was just no gas and electricity, and people had to to do with what they had. Um, so a lot of our family. Uh, memorabilia, heirlooms, anything of value, anything, uh, grand, grandfather's um, medals of honor uh, for serving. Um, so we were not allowed Soviet, to have, World War II. Yeah, we were not allowed to bring anything, not only of value, but of, a, of any like historical. So we came, they, they, they literally opened up your luggage and luggage and took stuff out and and took stuff out and and they didn't give it to your family to hold it was just it just it's theirs now (laughs) it was if you had family there you could hand it off to the family that's also why they took the several bottles of cognac there was like okay this bottle of cognac i'm taking as a bride these three bottles i can give away this is though like this is like one bottle that i really need to take with with us um so remember that the the wedding bands, my parents didn't get it until after the fall of the Soviet, like when we went back and stuff, that's when they brought them. Um, a lot of the other stuff was just was yeah, gone. It, was gone. It, it wasn't allowed. You weren't allowed to take a lot of things. But um, one thing we were allowed to take was um, China sets, the cobalt, um, mm-hmm. which was a German company at the time. And cobalt with the cobalt blue and stuff and gold leafed, um, we were able to take that. That was a value, and but we were allowed to leave with those. We were allowed like, to leave. We still all with, have them still. <laughs> it's like our mm-hmm. prize We still have it. Um, Inga's and mine wool blankets, like uh, like actual wool stuff, blankets and stuff. Those ones uh, came over um, pillows that were like natural feather pillows, and I think we used those pillows for like twenty years <laughs> until we moved on. <laughs> Yeah. Um, the wool blankets, I still have mine. You know, we take them apart every few years, wash the wool, and then re-sew them. But those were the type of things that we were, that was allowed to leave the country. Like, but anything of value, of like precious metals, stones, anything like that, not allowed. No. And you, you had to bribe them to, to let, let, you know, let you, uh, let you keep some of your own possessions. So. Yeah. There was a lot of bribing involved and it was customs on exit. So you Mm -hmm. had to go through that. You know, usually you go only through customs when you enter a country, you don't go through customs when you exit it. But at that time, that's the way it was. So I do remember seeing those automatic doors and I thought it was me doing magic tricks. So I would tell, I would tell my family, look, 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 I'm going to do a magic trick and it's going to open and I'm going to do a magic trick and it's going to close. And so everybody would tell me that when I was a kid, when I was like growing up, do you remember when you would do the magic trick and you make the door open? Did you remember that? So I, I kind of do remember that part too. Um, I remember coming, I remember us coming to our apartment. 
I remember our cousins giving me the, the, oh my God, this is so funny. Um, what's that? The clown song. Isn't this swell? Isn't this neat? Oh, send in the clown. Uh, yes. And so, uh, send in the clouds, uh, was, um, a wind-up doll uh, that was on this styrofoam. It was a clown that would move its head. I would sing on a stand. Da, 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 Our cousins didn't give us wow. what a what a heavy song. <laughs> well, do you remember that? <laughs> I remember that, but that wasn't a gift from our cousins. That was something Dad got us. Oh really? Oh, I thought it was the cousins yeah. gave it to us. Oh, oh yeah. But well, I remember Lilith winding it for me when and that god-awful orange carpet god what was that color this caramel uh, it was something left over from like the 70s it was yeah. just bad <laughs> carpet. it was like a mustard yellow okay so once upon a time that was a shag carpet but they had been worn down so mm -hmm. much that it was no longer shag yeah <laughs> that's the sad truth is. oh my goodness yeah. so so okay can you can you describe what armenia is like in, in like the physical sense of what it is like being there compared to Los Angeles, because it's got to be like and now night and day. Or, or, yes. or, or when you left there to come to Los Angeles, uh, just like that, like culture shock, I can't imagine. I will tell you about the culture shock I got the first time uh, in Italy. Um, we, we were in Italy waiting to come here and uh, we went to the bazaar. Market, like the that. open air the market. It's an open air market, yeah. And we need to get shoes. And I remember we walk into this booth and I kid you not, I remember this man's face. He had dreadlocks and I had never seen an African-American man before. And I just remember seeing <laughs> the hair. And I just remember looking at like, this person's about to put a shoe on my foot. What, what's happening? And I remember my dad and my mom saying it's okay like you know uh and i don't remember the conversation but i do remember the man with the dreadlocks because i had never seen dreadlocks in my life i had never seen a person of color in my life ever it was so, it's, armenia is so homogenous you know it's um you wouldn't even see uh, i don't know like uh, a foreigner was a russian yes exactly that's that's that was the extent no like a Georgian like, or a Russian that was Indian those were the or, or or any type of you know Asian country I remember was, the Indians at the airport I remember like seeing oh families of like of, of uh, Indians at the um thing airport um Italy airport like having seen so many people from so many different cultures and stuff so that was so the first time yeah that was the first time that i remember uh have like feeling a culture shock was in italy and then i'm pretty sure i didn't understand italy being very different than america i'm pretty sure until you know until my adult life i thought that was the same place and same thing at the same time you know i didn't know that was two different places <laughs> and the other thing that i remember so vividly was one of the first things we did when we came to our america was to go to a Artsakh protest. It, it was, was a, I think that was a, it was a year after, a year or two after we were I was here. four and I remember I have my, I have a picture and it was my first march and I just didn't understand why mom and dad were making me walk all this way. Like, I just remember like, can you please carry me? Can you please carry me? Can you please carry me? And there's a picture of me holding the flag, whatever flag, like I, I spread it across my chest and I'm, and I always take pictures like this. I don't know why. 
I would always, I would she always was displaying like, things. <laughs> I was always like, yeah, so I have this display and I'm just like this, you know, yee high and a baby. And the first, one of the first things I remember seeing Armenians was at this uh, march uh, for, March for Justice, March for Recognition, for Armenian Genocide. Uh, I think it was Artsakh at that time. Wasn't there issues with Artsakh sis, at that time? The first one that we went to, which was the march in Mont from Montebello, which was the Armenian Genocide Recognition oh, got it. Uh, and Commemoration, right. that one. Because yeah. I remember I was eight or nine when we first went to the Artsakh. Because Artsakh mm -hmm. stuff, the Simgait and the Baku pogroms happened like a year or two after. Because I remember okay. the refugees coming to, coming to America at that time because it, there was like a big influx of Armenians coming in and it was after the fall of the Soviet. So it was like mm -hmm. 90, 91, 90. when, 90, 91. One Ilona came actually. Yes. Because they yeah, were part of the, the refugee uh -huh. wave. Yeah, yeah. The, the Armenians from, that were living in Azerbaijan in that area, they were fleeing pogroms and they were fleeing um, like mobs, you know, that yeah. were coming in and, and searching for Armenians to kill them. So there was a big influx of them, but that's when I already, there was a lot of Armenians here. I remember going to marches with my mom. I remember her buying like a five pound big bag of sugar and donating it to a church for like goodwill and stuff. But it was also after the 88 earthquake. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, the earthquake happened in um, 1988 and it was like a huge earthquake. It, pretty much leveled the second largest city. Um, so the Armenia's in a earthquake corridor area where a lot of earthquakes happen in that region. And it, cause it's on like a mountainous plateau. So, but there's like a few tectonic plates that are shifting around. So there's um, like every once in a while you'll see like, you know, like a 7.6 in Turkey or a big earthquake in Turkey. And it's just in that region. Um, there was an earthquake that happened. It was, I, I don't remember how big it was, but it was, I think it was in the sevens or in like the high sixes. And because of the way that the buildings are built, it was built of stone. And the, the way that the masonry and Soviet uh, style of architecture it was, there was no joints of like waving or anything like that. Like the way that the buildings are built here in America is made of wood. Um, especially like in California, it's wood so that like if there's a, a quake or something shakes, the, the building has a little bit of give. But the way that it was over there is that kind of like the buildings crumbled on onto themselves and a lot of them were natural stone like tuf, which is like a volcanic uh, arid rock. Um, and um, the rest were just like concrete. So a lot of that stuff collapsed on itself and the entire cities were leveled um i remember some of, of of the pictures of it and it was like a big international thing because a huge earthquake happened and it was in soviet armenia um there was a big humanitarian aid push you know how there's like um africa aid or band aid there was like armenia aid and they did like one of those uh, you know all the stars get together and sing the song yeah. you know what i mean for armenia that's also how the armenian telethon started where people would donate to a fund that would go to the government or go to the people themselves over there. Um, at that time, also the war broke out in uh, Gharabakh for um, wanting independence. So Gharabakh is a semi-autonomous zone in, that is located in 
Azerbaijan only because Stalin was playing politicking, you know. Um, he had the thing of where he would move around ethnic groups so, so that one group did not have, uh, he was able to control them by putting in a rival ethnic group within their region. So Armenians were and have been living continuously and are indigenous to Ostov since the Bronze Age, basically. And there's evidence of that there by the numerous amounts of historical sites, of monasteries, one of the first monasteries around the world that was built is built there. Um, there's stuff from like the third century. So it's like we've been historically, we've been there. And they're excavating period. an entire Armenian uh, village. Uh, that went to Azerbaijan. That area went to Azerbaijan. Tigrana, oh. yes. I know, I know. A lot of our historical sites have been handed over to Azerbaijan for um, their territorial integrity. Davivank, Tigranakev, they both, and the the one in Shushi, the the Ganzar, I forget the name, the pronunciation of it, that went over, I know, I know, I know. Amaras, like the first monastery that went, that, it's a bit painful for us because we've mm -hmm. been there and we know the significance and the importance of those sites for us, for our cultural heritage. Um, and now they're, they're been handed over to a nation that does not value that and is hell-bent on destroying any evidence of um, Armenians that have been indigenous to that land. So, and they did that in Nakhijevan. So Stalin gave um, Nakhijevan to Azerbaijan, which was a part of Armenia and had historical Armenia to try to appease Turkey and, and um, try to bribe Turkey to join the Soviet Union because he said, look, we're giving your fellow countrymen, Azeris, which are Turks, quote unquote, they're not, by the way. Um, they are Safavid Iranians that have been given the Turkish language, that have been given a Muslim um, religion, but they're not culturally that. They, you know, going back, they did not exist. Um, the notion of Azerbaijan or Azeris um, in that area, in that region, did not exist until um, the start of the Soviet Union, which was like the late 1800s to the early, um, what is it, the early uh, 19th century um, during the war and stuff. Um, so Stalin, in order to appease the Turks, gave certain portions of it. And so this one region, which was completely Armenian, there wasn't a lot of non-Armenians living in that area, um, he gave that to Azerbaijan with the notion that that area was autonomous, that they can self-govern, that they can have self-determination so that they can keep their culture alive. And Armenians did do that. There was a lot of Armenians that were living in Azerbaijan, in Baku, in Sumgait, in Mag Magderan, um, certain other villages and areas that was completely only and only Armenian for like thousands of years. So um, my grandmother, she had family that would had property and all that other stuff go back and forth with Baku during the Soviet times. And this was, I think, early, late 30s or so, 40s and stuff, like mm -hmm. after the first war and before the Second World War II. So there was a lot of connections back and forth there. Um, there's none now. You, It is illegal to be an Armenian. If you are an Armenian and you're trying to traveled to Azerbaijan, you will not be let in the country. 
Um, if your last name ends in I-A-N or Y-A-N, you are barred from entering the country. It is the only country in the entire world where one ethnicity is not allowed, and that is Azerbaijan, and Armenians are not allowed. The latest controversy was the um, football player Henrik Mkhitaryan, which is like one of the really best uh, football players. And by football, I mean soccer, like the actual international football. Um, he his team was to to go and to play um, in Qatar, in um, Azerbaijan, but he was not allowed to go because they could not guarantee his safety in that country because he's Armenian and there's a lot of um, Armenia phobia there, which is, sounds like such a ridiculous thing, but it's actually reality where for the past 30 years, any and all issues and problems have been blamed on the Armenian population and the Armenians. And because Armenians did X, Y, and Z, there's been, um, they have IDPs were are internally displaced people, which was the refugees that they claimed to, um, to be from the seven surrounding regions that Armenians took as buffer zones for Aftakh, um, for Gharabakh. Um, well, those IDPs, those internally displaced people, for the past 30 years have not been allowed to buy property, have been kept in squalid conditions, and their numbers have increased. They've gone in from 100,000 to 200,000 to right now, it's 600,000 to a million people have been displaced. Well, yeah, if you keep a you know group of people you know, in, in poverty conditions and then just count how many offsprings and stuff they have, then your numbers of displaced people balloon up to 700 something, 700,000 people that have been displaced. But in the true reality is it wasn't that much in the beginning of the war. It's just that those not, those people have not been allowed to have um, pretty much put down roots anywhere else with the notion that they're going to go back to the seven regions that were just handed back the seven surrounding regions that were just handed back. Oh, this wow. is such a tough topic and it's so horrendous and traumatic because right now I'm, I'm trying to distance myself from it, but anytime I look at it, it's, it's horrific. Um, they're right now committing crimes against humanity and there's videos circulating of soldiers, of civilians, of old people that are Armenian, that are ethnic Armenians, being decapitated, killed, um, having their throats slashed on live air, and and their mistake is is that they're Armenian. Right, they're just so, but trying to wipe them yeah. out. Yeah, wipe any and all Armenians out. The 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 one that the newest one that just happened was these two villages that have been ethnically Armenian for millennia, and they were um, in this like little strip of area where it was surrounded by um, Azeris and Azeris attacked that area and circled it, took in 60 um, people from, from that area that were defending those two villages and they're captured. And now videos are emerging of um, POWs. Um, their bodies are being turned over, but their hands and their feet are bound, which means that they were alive when they were captured. And especially when their hands are being bound behind them and they've been shot and they've been killed. Um, they've been executing villagers of like going into homes and executing. They executed a scientist, a PhD scientist. Um, uh, and this and is ongoing home. right now. Yeah. After yeah. the ceasefire. Yeah. 
that ceasefire was violated two days ago, and I have to be very, very careful about what I say about the ceasefire. I have to be careful about who is the guarantor of the ceasefire and how they're not following through and guaranteeing the ceasefire. Um, so there's a ceasefire. The war is still ongoing. It's just a ceasefire right now, but it's not even a ceasefire. It's kind of like whatever they can get away with. And one thing I just have to say is, is like that, like I don't think that the people that are perpetuating these war crimes are going to be brought to justice because they're celebrated. Um, there is a guy, Rom, Romanov Safarov, which was, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right. He's a, a, a Nazari that was a military man. And they, in Hungary, they were, they were having military exercises from different countries. And there was an Armenian there and there was a Nazari there. And he went into the room where the Armenian was sleeping while the Armenian was asleep. He took a, um, a hatchet or an ax and he um, decapitated, he killed a man. And he was about to kill the guy's roommate, was a, which was another Armenian, but um, the noise that the first guy made woke up the second guy and he was not, he was able to fight the guy off. And the guy was arrested, he went in jail and he was in jail for about six years and through some negotiations, um, Azerbaijan negotiated for him to be transferred over to Azerbaijan to be to serve out the rest of his um, uh, sentence in Azerbaijan, blah, 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 because he's a countryman, blah, blah, blah. As soon as his plane landed, he was given a hero's welcome uh, for the past six years. His uh, salary and everything else was restored. He was given uh, an apartment in Baku. He is a celebrated national hero. So if you have somebody that murders an Armenian in their sleep, as a celebrated national hero, mm. I don't have any hope for the people who are splitting the throats of, of 80-year-old geriatric men that are begging for their life while you hold down their arms and legs and you split their throat. I don't, I don't think the people who did that are going to face any sort of repercussion. If anything, they'll probably get an apartment or they're going to be celebrated national heroes. And Amnesty International is not saying anything. Good, good job, Amnesty International. What the hell like, is the purpose of any of those fucking stupid organizations who only do anything except collect money and, uh, you know, protect the people of their interest or say something when needs to be said because they're being bribed? No, the validity of all of these organizations have completely dismantled themselves and shown that they are nothing but just a... a, 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 a a, um, PR group. A PR. That's it. Yes. PR they are, they, all they are, uh, exactly. Yeah, that's it. They, are, they have absolutely no clout whatsoever. So I, I'm sorry, I don't, I, I don't recognize the validity of these organizations at all. Mm -hmm. When, when yeah. the time comes for you to serve your purpose, when you're collecting all those funds, when you're collecting all that money and you're trying to be an organization and you're trying to bring your legitimacy so that you can have all these money that are being funded to you. And when it comes down to you doing your job, you, you turn a blind eye. You don't see any of this is happening. You're, and you're the only organization in the entire world who's able to determine whether this is happening or not. What the hell? What, who's, who's in charge of it? Who's playing this cat and mouse game? Send in the clowns. So Okay, so speaking of clowns, um, before the war started, there was a skirmish in July. Um, the skirmish in July, Armenians were able to squelch that. After that, there was a huge PR 
pump of millions and millions of dollars on by the government of Azerbaijan because they have oil and they have money when have they have a pipeline that goes through Georgia um, through Turkey into Europe so they're providing oil and that oil pipeline is owned by BP um, so uh, to so guarantee that this is this is this is actually a a, uh, a British war so can we just call this a British war then is that it's not a it is and it isn't okay so I mean like uh, Turkey yeah. is, is, is Britain's oh, dog uh, so British is like well, we don't have our hands dirty we don't get our hands dirty this is just our pipe and our money yeah so Ugh. what uh, Turk what the government of Turkey and the government of Azerbaijan did is that they hired several um, PR firms, international PR firms. They hired several like other companies to raise up. And they also did a lot of, um, especially Azerbaijan, did a lot of uh, caviar PR. Um, Azerbaijan is known for their caviar as well. They, they have access to the Caspian Sea. So they're able to, uh, to get caviar and stuff from them. And they use that as a form of PR where they wine and dine elected officials. So they wind and dine elected officials. They wind and dined officials of several organizations. They wind and dined um, owners of newspaper companies, of, of media companies, and um, they pretty much put out a blockade of information. So any a lot of uh, information that Armenians were trying to get out about the war was not, and whatever coverage was um, favorable to Azerbaijan and Turkey. It was, so a lot of the companies uh, and I say these companies because I don't view them as journalistic entities anymore because they are companies because right. they put profits over people. They're, they're corporations. Yes. And yeah, corporations. So these uh, companies took these monies from, and, and then these PR groups, um, and I'm talking like millions and millions of dollars of, of PR funds. So these PR groups put out hit pieces on Armenians. They put out hit pieces about the war. They put out, uh, false information, they weren't reporting a lot of stuff, um, things like UNESCO, things like Amnesty, things like Amnesty International, like a lot of organizations that you think should be like reputable organizations have been mum. And it's been a big push from the Armenian community, specifically the diaspora, to try to get some sort of recognition, some sort of representation. Um, there was a media blockade on a lot of things. Um, and Armenians had to take a, a page from BLM of blocking the freeway to get any sort of recognition of what was going on. The war was raging for about four days or so. Armenians were in front of the CNN building in downtown Hollywood um, and protesting and they had blocked off the streets. They had been there for night and day, the entire full night and stuff they had been there and there was no news coverage from CNN there was no news coverage from the local news affiliates or anything like that of like hey a war has broken out and you have the largest Armenian diaspora uh, population um, Los Angeles is home to the largest Armenian diaspora outside of Armenia um, it is only rivaled by the Armenian diaspora that is in uh, Russia so the highest concentration of Armenians here and it's the countrymen and you're not even on the local level, you're not reporting that there's a war going on and the war is broken out. Um, so Armenians actually went down and blocked the freeway. And that was the only way to the 101 freeway, the Hollywood freeway. Wow. They literally yeah. walked down the ramps that are, there's on ramps right by the CNN building. <laughs> so yes. they went in and they b b blocked it. So it's like, well, if you're not going to report it, are you at least going to report this? 
And I remember watching the news and recording it and to trying to see what they were presenting it. And it was small little blurbs of like skirmishes have broken out, intense fighting has broken out. It's like, no, no, Azerbaijan attacked. It was an attack. It was a blitzkrieg. A blitzkrieg is when you throw everything as a military uh, to try to overwhelm and, and bypass and go through. So the first four days of the war was insanely intense. And, you know, they, they took out 50% of the Avtakh because the Avtakh has its own autonomous zone and has its own defense army, has its own defense, every, like whatever is needed to be considered a republic. Avtakh has a, a bank, has an electoral system, has a president, has a congress has a military, has all the things that you would need to be considered a republic. It has its own water and power. Um, Hydro had had its own water and power and had hydro stations, had everything that you would need to be considered an an autonomous republic. So so then um, Armenians blocked the freeway to get some sort of thing, and it is like, oh, just intense skirmishes, intense, um, little uh, shootouts and, and you know, uh, uh, it wasn't being described as a, what it actually was, which is a war, which was one side attacked. And there was like, well, Armenians are fighting this. Armenians like the status quo. Armenians did not want war. They want peace. They want to peacefully live as they would have been leaving, living there for millennia. But um, Azerbaijan wanted to liberate the areas of, for Armenians from Armenians. They kind of wanted to liberate Artsakh, not for Armenians, but uh-huh. from Armenians, from uh-huh. the people who are indigenous to that land. So for territorial integrity. And that was the only thing that was being taught, um, you know, being taught it around, that this is a war of territorial integrity and that Armenia is occupying it. But Armenia is not occupying it. Armenia is not indigenous. the country... And, you know, I mean, Aftak is, is this autonomous zone, autonomous region that is, is not occupying, has just been there. It's right, like trying to tell Native Americans you're occupying the reservation. It's like, <laughs> are you serious? Well, we do do What that. do you mean we I'm occupying? I'm an occupying force. Why are you surprised? <laughs> America is, uh, Turkey and Azerbaijan has taken a page out of America's tried and true, uh, you know, uh, totalitarian takeover methods. So let's not be surprised why America's like, oh, oh, is that what they're doing? Huh, I wonder where they got that idea from. Hmm. Oh, no, America's not going to be interested. I'm, I'm sorry, but America is not going to be interested because Armenia does not have natural resources that can be exploited. It does not have oil, but Azerbaijan has oil. Mm. Azerbaijan has lots of oil. So part of their caviar PR um, it worked and it's still working. So when you have organizations like the freaking New York Times that is publishing stories about poor Syrian mercenaries or the BBC that is publishing stories about all oh, poor uh, Syrian mercenaries that were tricked into going to um, Azerbaijan to fight for Azerbaijan <laughs> and how you should feel sad for the poor exploited mercenaries. Really? Really? What about the people that they were killing? What about the, the villages and the villagers that they were killing? What about no poor ISIS? villagers. No what poor about Armenian ISIS? villagers. What about the ISIS videos? Oh, poor people oh, in those yeah. ISIS videos, right? No, being beheaded as a, uh, uh, in a video. Has Armenia 
that's the problem. See, the, the reason why Armenia hasn't won is because they're not as savage, because they're not uh, killers, because they're not uh, suicide bombers, because they're not, uh, you know, um, uh, what are a uh, Taliban? They're not, uh, they believe in human I'm rights. Of the Taliban. <laughs> so there were mercenaries sent over, paid and, uh, uh, and sent over by Turkey. So Turkey had a recruitment center in uh, Syria, and they recruited around 2,000 um, jihadists as, as fighters. And those guys were lied to and, and told that they were going to go and, and um, guard oil fields or pipelines and stuff so that the uh, Azerbaijani army could actually go in and fight at the front. But what, what happened is that they were used as cannon fodder. So in the, in the first days of the Blitzkrieg, they put those guys that were not trained, not, not anything. It's kind of like, here's a gun, go. Mm -hmm. That kind of situation. Right. Where and if you tried to get back, you were shot by the Azeris. If you tried to move forward, you were shot by the Armenians. Because the Armenians are protecting their, their livelihood, yeah. their you know, right, right to exist in that area. So the, these guys were used as cannon father. Um, it was kind of like use them because they were dispensable. And then Azerbaijan doesn't have to show that, you know, it lost two, 3,000 more people than it actually did because it was not on the books. Um, they also had um, fighters, um, uh, terrorist like fighters imported in from Pakistan. With, this was confirmed by actual uh, so military soldiers and that they let it slip accidentally, like praising their uh, Pakistani brothers for coming in. Um, they had uh, the Turkish commanders and commandos um, started doing uh, military exercises and just, you know, happened to leave all the military equipment, happened to leave some generals, happened to leave, you know, lieutenants and people who were pretty much um, organizing and fighting the war. It was, this was not a war between just Azerbaijan and Armenia. If it was just uh, a war between Azerbaijan and Armenia and the and we would have won again. Uh, we would have won Arana. again. Yeah. And some of the again. stuff that I'm reading, some of the stuff that I'm I'm reading about, like technologically where we were and, and what we were doing, it. I think we would have fared a lot better. It would not have been as horrific as it is has been. Mm -hmm. We assumed that we had um, political. Uh, currency clouds. in yeah. the inter not clouds mm -hmm. currency in the international market. We assumed that that you know people that and people cared rights. about Armenia. Yeah, human. Well, no, just human rights. Period. Human it's, not rights. A, it's not an Armenian mm -hmm. issue. We just thought that people cared. Yeah, we about assumed that rights. that that it was a human that, rights issue. Yeah, but ethics. Nobody cares. Not killing. Yeah, everybody. Right. You know, things so, for people to Yeah, the most that we got was 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 deep concerns and. Uh, urging of people French, to go back in and negotiate. <laughs> we got we got deep concerns by the French. We were so happy. Hey, the French actually acknowledged it. So that I'm was saying. the big thing. Okay, that's what I'm saying. So thank you for your deep concerns. Uh, although yeah. that they were, they, hang on. So because of the, the genocide, a lot of the Armenian diaspora was spread out. Um, but we kept our, our, our culture and our heritage alive. So you have a lot of diasporic groups from different countries. One of the big uh, diasporas it was from Syria um, areas after the Armenian genocide where people went and specifically Aleppo, um, those areas. And they were Armenians. And when the war broke out, Ar Armenia pretty much said anybody of Armenian heritage is uh, able to come and repatriate because you're Armenian first. 
and you can come in and we will the government will work to get you situated get you housing get you help you get you on your feet basically um so a lot of uh, armenians uh, from syria relocated and this is an those syrian armenians have been in syria for like two three four generations so it's, yeah, and i'm just saying can you imagine like giving yeah being escaping the war and then displaced yeah and and then having them come be prosecuted by uh syrians from azerbaijani's side okay like can we just like understand that for just a moment like that's come on yeah people that you thought were on your side are are coming to attack you basically come on yeah yeah your fellow countrymen that you know i mean like two two you know what i mean like a few uh, a, a few months ago or a couple of years ago, you'd be, you know, playing each other. Now you're fighting each other type of yeah, situation. So, so um, Arme- Armenia is a, a country that's surrounded by Muslim countries, but Armenia yes. is not Muslim, correct? No. Okay, so Armenia is surrounded by three sides by Muslim countries. Um, you have the um, uh, Azeris and uh, Turkey and um, uh, Iran. And then you have in the north, you have Georgia, not the states, the countries. Um, <laughs> but they're so not Muslim. No, no. Georgia is Christian, actually. So uh, they're a nation, they're a Christian nation as well. Um, and if you look at their flag, their flag has like four crosses on there. So of course they're Christian. Um, but Armenia has been surrounded by Muslims for a very, 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 very long time. That's when I, that's why I said we've been genetically isolated since the Bronze Age is because of that. Because we chose our really, um, the Christian religion very early and in that area, there was other rival uh, religions before um, Islam came through. There were the Zoroastrians, um, which were the Persians. There was the Hellenistic, uh, which was the Greeks was and Greeks, stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but then Armenians, they took on Christianity and pretty much said that we're Christian and that's it. Uh, as a national identity, they folded in all of their pagan customs and stuff and into the religion itself and that's part of the reason why the culture has survived for so long and part of the reason why the religion has survived so long um we've been fighting to keep our identity since the bronze age basically not to be forcefully converted not to be forcefully conquered we have been conquered um we have been colonized but we've still kept our tradition and our culture um for as long as for millennia basically yeah. And we didn't intermix because of religious reasons as well. Mm-hmm. So hence why. And they've done actually a study, and I read the, the scientific study on this, which is very, very interesting. You know how everybody's doing like these DNA tests right now, and every, mm-hmm. you know, it's coming out, you're 20% this, 30% that, 30% this. Armenians, when we're doing it, it's like 99% Armenian, Armenian. and that's it. <laughs> that's incredible. That, I got that. Yeah, I got that. <laughs> Yeah, that, that... You know, and so they were they were wondering like why was this happening? And then when they did the study, found out that Armenians are a living DNA fossil. Mm-hmm. Our DNA has not been changed for over two thousand years, and part of the reason why is is because of Christianity and being surrounded by Muslim nations. So a lot of intermixing was not allowed. Um, when the Seljuks came, uh, the Turkic tribes that are descendants of the Uyghurs. Um, the Uyghurs, the, the, the ones that are in China, um, they came through through Mongolia, through the Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan type of thing, came all the way through, slightly went south, conquering um, Persian Empire and a lot of the Arabic countries, and then, you know, finally ending up in Constantinople, which is Turkey, and then conquering them. 
where so that's why a lot of the Turkish uh, people when they do DNA tests they have some Armenian in them and a lot of Asiatic uh, countries and, and percentage of, of Asian um, whereas Armenians when we do DNA tests there's like zero Asian <laughs> there's no Asian and the Asian aspect of it would be the the Seljuks and the Genghis Khan um, that, that came through like the big Genghis Khan you know conquests and stuff. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they're they're trying to silence your voice as a culture. Um, yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. Because we're you know it's either fold us into the culture or you know. Um, but Armenians had lived in the Ottoman Empire, so when Ottoman Empire was established, we lived in the Ottoman Empire as second class citizens for like six hundred years, and then um, before the fall of the Ottoman Empire, there were pogroms, which is like ethnic cleansing type of things where mobs would go through looking for Armenians, pulling them out and killing them. So there were several pogroms that happened before. I mean, systematically killing. Yeah. So there was the the Hamidian massacres. After that, set the stage for the Armenian genocide when the young Turks came through, um, used Armenians to to overthrow the Ottoman Empire and then turned around and betrayed the Armenians and killed them with the fear that the Armenians are going to collude with the Russians. So this thing, struggle for control of that area of the Caucasus in the highland, the Armenian highland area, has been going on since like the fall of the Ottoman Empire. Mm-hmm. So, and it's been a struggle between Turkey and Russia, because Russia had its own vassal in that area, which was Azerbaijan and, and all that, that area, and Georgia and, uh, and Abkhazia and Ossetia, um, all that area was under Russian control and, and the Turks were afraid that the Armenians were going to join the Russian side. So they were like, well, you know what, let's just massacre them. So there's not an issue. And they will have a pan-Turkic nation where that's it, still a big thing is to have a pan-Turkic nation, which um, joins Turkey with uh, Azerbaijan and that joins it with all the stand countries, all the like, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, uh, all the way through Mongolia, all the way to China. Like so. Mm, like, where have I heard Turkey. this before? From sea to shining sea. It's a manifest destiny. We were we were chosen to to spread. Hmm, where was that coming from? Sea to shining sea. Anyway. Sorry. <laughs> no. <laughs> Sorry. Um, no. No. Feel free to express yourself, Inga. <laughs> Feel free. So, uh, I mean, like this, it's still Turkey's uh, ambitions right now is to unite all the Turkic countries into one big, huge to sum it up. coalition. Yeah. Got it. Type of thing. Okay. And Armenia standing in the way because it's in the middle. All right. So, so when the news reported that there was a ceasefire, um, mm-hmm. that didn't really happen. No. The ceasefire happened, but it's kind of like if Azerbaijan feels like violating it, but violated. Um, the ceasefire was announced about four times and it was violated within minutes. And it was kind of comical to watch because they would tweet out that Armenians have violated the ceasefire before the time that the ceasefire took place. So they would, you know what I mean, like uh, tweet at 8.01 that Armenians violated the ceasefire at 8.05, but it was 8.01. It wasn't 8.05. So, so um yeah. They would violate the ceasefire and continue on fighting, and Armenians were obeying the ceasefire. So during the, the blitzkrieg, um, they took out a lot of the air defense 
um, the, the anti-aircraft that Armenians had. And this war was fought primarily with drones. Um, the drones that they were used were the Israeli drones, the kamikaze Israeli drones, and also the Turkish drones, the Bayraktars. So this war was also a bit of an advertisement for Turkey for their technology. They advertised the Bayraktars, and then two weeks after the war had been raging, the war went out for 45 days. After the first two weeks of the war, Ukraine put in an order for drones, for Turkish drones. So Ukraine has an issue with Russia over oh, Crimea. Yeah. Over, and Crimea over. is also another yeah. historical thing. So Crimea was a was ethnically Russian, but was given to Ukraine to put them into the fold with the understanding that if Ukraine ever seceded out, that Crimea would go back to Russia. So Russia has um, taken back Crimea because it's, you know, following the rules of like the ancient treaties that were like 200 years old almost, which one treaty is about to expire and it concerns Nakhijevan, which is that little area that was given to Azerbaijan on the other side of Armenia that borders Turkey right now. So those treaties, Russia's operating like on stuff that was agreed about like 200 years ago. So Crimea is supposed to go back to Russia, but right now we're in the modern age and territorial integrity is a big thing. And it's a reason for people to be like, what the fuck are you doing, Russia? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so they took, took that back. Um, Ukraine wants it back because it is a port. Um, it's an important area. So... Well, you're going to be fighting Russia, back needs, it, Russia needs it to uh, obviously put a pipe through. That's the reason why it's taking it. It's, yeah, of course. Otherwise, it it's all about it. oil. It's all it's about, about oil. Gas. Although, it's otherwise, it's it's about this big and it and, and it has a shit ton of land that, is, that has no use for it. Uh, that doesn't is, isn't getting used. So it's not like it wants uh, land or is it, it, it's it's really about I need my it's access. pipeline. It's the it's access. access. It's, that's all it is. Is the access. So I'm gonna take yeah. it so I can have my access. The, the access to get to the money. Yeah. 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 It's it's port access. That is the thing that we have to, to look at. It, it, it is Russia is fighting for port accesses. It needs warm water port accesses because the other ports that it has, half of the uh, year it's frozen solid. Mm -hmm. So it needs warm water port access. So in order for it to have that, it, it, it's going to take Crimea. It's also taking a portion of Syria. Mm -hmm. So the other side. right which now, was, which when, is being disputed with Turkey, right? Wasn't wasn't a Russia uh, just being mm -hmm. basically they were they were fighting their dirty war on Syrian land? Could we just say that Turkey and Russia? Yes. Yeah. So as soon as um, Trump pulled out, um, you know, of Syria, with pretty much said that we don't care about that area, but they should care. Um, as soon as they pulled out. Russia and Turkey kind of are going at it to have control. What Russia wants is a warm water port. So it negotiated with Turkey concerning, Azer uh, um, concerning Azerbaijan and Karabakh in exchange for a warm water port with Syria. So Syria, you know, has a little areas, Russia bombs it, which is the training grounds for Turkey. Turkey pulls back. Um, after Turkey pulls back, then um, Russia is able to go in and secure a warm water port, and then our, and then Russia pulls back, and Turkey is able to get some of the villages, or Azerbaijan is able to get some of the villages. I use Turkey and Azerbaijan interchangeably right now because 
uh, Azerbaijan has pretty much handed everything over to Turkey. And Azerbaijan is country in name only and not specifically in autonomy. When you have the Turkish generals controlling the, Tur uh, the Azeri army, I'm considering that as one nation. And they keep saying that one people, two nations, that they're the same, but they're not really, mm -hmm. but anyways. So uh, in doing that, it, it, it pretty much gave Turkey uh, an area in the Caucasus and a say-so in that area, in the region. Um, but it also gave Russia a warm water port through Syria, a certain section of Syria. So it's all about money, it's all about port access, it's all about being able to sell their natural gas and be the only suppliers and sell their oil to Europe and be the only suppliers. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's just like the politicking that is going on, it's so messed up and it's just, I mean, it's caught in the crosshairs of it. Okay. And, and, yeah. Yeah. So, so when I was talking to Inga earlier, um, we were talking about how people sharing this on social media were, were kind of getting harassed. Targeted, yes. So, uh, okay, targeted. So part of the PR, remember I talked about like the PR stuff that was happening? Part of the PR was also bots, was also actual people, um, like a brigade, like an army. And it was so organized. It was so targeted, and it and it was found out. The Armenians went in that understand Azeri was social media influencers with like huge followings in private groups and private Facebook groups and private um, Instagram groups um, had docs with English um, uh, what you call it comments, just plethora of them that you can go in and copy and paste. And so they would do use those and they would say from this time to this time, we're targeting the business entities of this actor. One example I'll bring up is Cardi B. Mm -hmm. Cardi B has a big, huge following. She had the song that was walk, walk, you know, that came out and everybody was following her and stuff. So she had Armenian friends and people who were Armenian and asked her, Hey, can you get the word out on this? Like at least, you know what I mean, throw in the Armenia fund so that people can raise money that needs to go in because the war's going on. So she put up something, not on her page, on stories, on her stories. Mm -hmm. The following day, her business entities, not her, her business entities were overwhelmed with comments and direct messages. And some of them were bots, some of them were authentic people, some like harassment, false information, all those um the comments that were copy pasted in those Google Docs, those those were the ones that were the ones that was like uniformed. It's like the same comment several different people make, but mm -hmm. it was different iterations of it, so it looks like genuine comments. So and yeah, you can't tell fun. if it's a genuine account or if it's a bot or if it's like a genuine person that is copy pasting it or is it just a bot? And they would overwhelm any pages, and if they saw any tag that says Armenia, Armenian, the war, we're going to win, victory, or anything like that, they would go through and those pictures, and even if you were nobody, and if you had like a following of 200 people, all of a sudden you had all these DMs just overwhelming you. One person, and, and I felt so bad for her, um, was this girl, and she was a nurse in Atlanta, and, and she had a following of like 
80 people. It wasn't a lot of people. And she had posted something on her stories, and I commented, and I said, thank you so much for amplifying our voices. I appreciate it. And the next day, I see on her wall, like on her story, she's like, I am not going to stop talking about this. You can't silence me. So apparently she had become the target of all of these like bots and all of these comments and stuff that were harassing her because she had the audacity to tweet and and try Mm -hmm. to get the news out that there was a war going on and atrocities were being committed against Armenians. And she was just being overwhelmed. And she, her thing was like, no matter what you try to say, and I remember it because it was just like stuck at me. She's like, I've met an Armenian. He's the reason why I went to nursing school, why I'm a nurse. He paid for my classes. You can never tell me that Armenians are horrible, evil people because I won't believe you type of thing. Mm-hmm. So, so, uh, so I guess my question is, when social media is being controlled by corporations and money also, like how mm-hmm. how can we bring awareness to this in a way? Guerrilla tactics, that the is way we're doing now. Guerrilla tactics have to be because there's a certain aspect of it that when it goes viral, it's like that's the thing that needs to happen for it to go viral. But sorry, I'm gonna retract. The problem, the the reason why we're losing is because there are less Armenians who we're not the yeah, aggressors. No, because you can't afford we're not to. the aggressors. We're not the aggressors because we can't be aggressive. We don't have a proper military to be aggressive. How can you have a nation of 3 million people be aggressive to a nation of 10 million people backed by another nation of a military strength of 90 million people? And see, that's the thing. And 10 million people is Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan Azerbaijan would not have been able to to fight its own fight. So that's why I'm saying. No, it wouldn't because they started in July. They started in July. The skirmishes that happened in July, they were pushed back. They were humiliated. And what happened is that Turkey took over and when Turkey took yeah. over it brought in all of those technology the past 30 years that Armenia could have been using to to buy weapons and modernize its military it hasn't because it has had been living in institutional corrupt uh, no, and, and, and it, I get it so that's why I'm like well what do we need to do well we need to we need to, uh, we like need to there's certain <laughs> things no like no that. we don't need no we have not survived millennia by acting like that Minga because if we were act like them, we would have been annihilated millennia ago. It's, our strength is not, it, it not in that. You cannot have, we don't have the people to fight the war. You don't have enough conscripts. You don't have enough, like, okay, let's say every able-bodied man, woman, and child from ages 16 to, to 59 goes off and fight. That's still that's not, not enough that, to be able to not, combat a, a nation of 10 million. Psychological warfare. Yes, yes, but yes, psych- psychological yes. warfare. We are not there yet. We are still under psychological shock with the fact why. of what happened. That's yeah. what I'm saying. So what are, has to happen? No, no. We need, overnight, we need to become Scientologists. <laughs> so, 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 how can, so how can people who are not Armenian... Sorry, I don't how, how can it. I no, 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 not at all. Inga's like very like combative. <laughs> it's understandable. I mean, I, I can't relate to this at all. And, and thank you for talking about it because I know that it's not easy. But how, how can we bring awareness to this um, in a bigger way? How can we help? Right now is, is educating yourself and amplifying and commenting on behalf of Armenians. So when you see an article that is not authentic and true, like the ones that are in the Washington Post, that the ones that are popping up in reputable newspapers, yeah. quote unquote, reputable. NPR. Um, NPR if you misleading the, the, the conversation. Okay. So in order to combat that, to combat the misinformation, 
You need to educate yourself of what is happening. You need to educate yourself on the history of what is, of what, why it is happening. A lot of this, it goes down back to like the first World War in Stalin, and a lot of people don't know. I had a professor that I just spoke with recently, and I said, yeah, you know, when the war uh, settles down, and he was like, what war? What do you mean war? And I said, yeah, the war that broke out that's been like a news embargo on. That's the big thing is like, so as an as a non-Armenian, you need to demand those reputable news organizations to report. You need to call those journalists that are doing, um, that have won, won wars, awards on humanitarian uh, news coverage, um, on um, crimes against humanity news coverage. So you need to, to contact those journalists. You need to contact those news desks and ask them, why aren't you covering it? You need to contact um, Amnesty International and say, why are you not accurately reporting of what's going on? Why are you whitewashing it? It's to, to hold those news people accountable. It's to hold those organizations accountable. As an Armenian, they can say, ah, it's just an Armenian is just talking. But you as a non-Armenian that do not have an invested interest that is apparent, yeah. you know what I mean? That is apparent if you are, are uh, requesting or demanding accountability and coverage, that says a lot more. You writing a letter uh, represents a huge number of people because it, like statistically out of thousands of people, not a lot of people were going to write a letter. You know, not a, not a lot of people are going to comment on a post, not a lot of people. I would start tagging people on those uh, war crimes uh, videos. Mm-hmm. Sending those war crime videos to news desks and say, why aren't you covering this? Um, if this was in any other nation, those beheadings, yeah. 24 hours on freaking BBC, it would be on 24 hours on CNN, on Fox. Why isn't any of the religious organizations covering of, of what's going on to the first yeah. Christian nation? I mean, first Christian nation. nation. Why aren't they covering that monasteries that are from like the third century that are being destroyed? that churches are being destroyed, a cultural heritage is being destroyed. Where is UNESCO? Where? Where are all those governmental and non-governmental organizations um, demanding, like, they can, an example is I'm working with an organization that has just formed because we saw the need for it. And they have been going to companies that have been providing drone parts and asking them, why are you supporting your drone, your parts being used in drones to kill uh, civilians and bombing civilian, the civilian capital, which is Stepanakis, which was a consistent bombing since the beginning, since the first day of the war, which 60% of the city had been leveled, demanding accountability. Like uh, the group I'm working with, they went to Garmin and they proved to Garmin, like with evidence, that your GPS parts are being used in drones, in Turkish drones, in Bayraktar, and those Turkish drones are being used on the civilian population of Azerbaijan, in, um, in Azerbaijan, on the civilian population of Aftah. Why are you allowing that? So they went into Garmin, and Garmin was like, oh, no, it's just consumer product, but they were proving it wasn't a consumer product. It was a military-grade drone part, and they got Garmin to take off um, uh, to, to nullify the contract and no longer supply those parts. Um, you as a, uh, a non-Armenian can call your representatives, write to your representatives and demand accountability on your tax dollars. Why are, you, why are your 
thank you like you did Charlie. Do that. why yeah. are your and feinstein's an idiot i swear to god <laughs> she's a freaking dement anyways so why are your tax dollars your hard-earned tax dollars instead of going to you which right now that it's covid that you needed more than anything else why are those tax dollars being spent as military aid to azerbaijan why are those tax dollars used to send military aid to Turkey as a NATO country? Why are your tax dollars being sent being over there Armenia. to oppress? <laughs> mm. and, uh, and let's, let's uh, leave it as, uh, and I'll put, lay it out there. Um, when Obama was president, Obama was sending giving $100 million in aid to Armenia, an equal amount of $100 million in aid to Azerbaijan. When Obama left, and Trump took over. Trump slashed the the yearly aid to Armenia from 100 million to not even 15. It was like 14 and a half million, and raised the Azerbaijani military aid to 120 million. Why are your tax dollars going to that country, that incredibly oil-rich country, mm -hmm. that has a pipeline, that has all those natural resources? Why are your tax dollars going over there instead of going to you? Why do you? Why does the American people need to go to food banks? Because they are food insecure. Because their tax dollars are going to freaking fund the killing of civilians. Why is that acceptable? Where's the accountability in that? Why are there no sanctions? So that is that you as an American, you as a non-Armenian can demand accountability from your government for supporting another government that is doing that. You as an American can demand why are your tax dollars being going to corporations and companies that are supplying drone parts? Why are you subsidizing those companies as, an, as a taxpayer when they're making millions and millions off of the suffering and killing of indigenous people? Indigenous people that have lived on that land for millennia are being forced off of their and, homeland. And it's not hearsay. There's actual physical evidence at the moment verifying first century artifacts of the indigenous people that are literally there. It's, it's in the fucking ground. So sorry. That's why I was crying because I went and I saw that. Yeah. I saw the excavated first century pots that are that that have been made by armenians don't tell me don't tell me armenians that that this is this this land is disputed who's who's it belongs to when you're digging it up and you're digging up armenians and you're digging up armenian uh, artifacts guess what it's indigenous armenian land the, the actual church yeah. the christian church you know the church that you don't believe in that is standing there and it's third century that you do not pray to lets me know that guess what you weren't there to begin with this is not yours so the fact that we're disputing land indigenous land the fact that this is theirs and ours are you i mean who are they kidding? It's, it's hard to wrap your your head around it because unless you are under threat unless that like there's no like i i think for americans it, it, it's hard to grasp the fact that your country is in threat of not existing anymore mm -hmm. that the place that you were born to the place that you are connected like that your where your ancestors have been buried for thousands of years that all of a sudden you don't have access to that anymore. All of a sudden you 
are not allowed to go there anymore that that is not yours anymore right we don't um, understand having that reverence for something no like I, I I mean I've lived okay so I lived in uh, in America for 30 years and I had not been back for about 25 years until about five years ago so we went to Armenia and then we went to Ofta and I've traveled a lot and I've never felt the connection to the actual soil to the land mm -hmm. in any country other than my own and when I went to Armenia I felt the pull of the land I felt like okay this is me this is mm -hmm. where I come from this is my country this is my people I feel like I'm connected like I feel the energy the presence right. I felt that the strongest when we went to um Karabakh. Yeah, mm -hmm. When we went to Atach, and Atach and Gadabach are the same thing, it's just interchangeable names. When mm -hmm. we went to Atach, I felt such a pull, a connection to the land, to the history, to the people there. I felt like those were my roots, mm -hmm. as if I am like literally touching my roots, you know. And I've never felt that in anywhere else, in any other country, and in, like, and I've traveled a lot. I've traveled in America, I've traveled in Canada. And I asked my husband, because he's Canadian, I asked him, like, do you feel connected to Canada when we travel there? Do you feel the pull of the soil? Do you feel the spirit, that energy, like this is yours? And he said, no, not really, sometimes. And his people have been like his family has been in Canada since like the 1600s. Mm -hmm. So I'm asking him, do you feel that? And he's like, it's not, no, not really. And I feel that. And I did not believe that, that, that it was that I could feel that until I went back right. and until I was able to appreciate it. And now I can't go back to a lot of those historical sites. I can't go back to the place where uh, the kingdoms that my people have been, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, and it's so, I can't explain that to you what it's like. And, and I, you know what I mean? Like I in the can. way that the people. Okay. And, <laughs> yeah. It's no, I mean, it's, it's, it's so, so emotional. Hard. Like, it's and, so hard and when you say, because I, I mean, <sighs> it, it's, it's, the, the amount of love and pride that some Americans have for their country that they're willing to die for, they're willing to sacrifice everything for it. I don't think that they can grasp that there's a threat that then America can, can there can come a time where it come, America is not going to exist anymore. Right. I, I don't think they understand that. I never understood what an existential threat literally meant. Mm -hmm. And Armenians, and it's an existential threat of like you are no longer going to have a homeland that you the threat of a genocide of a second genocide and it is a genocide it is a cultural and physical genocide and that is happening and the biggest thing for us is that the international world doesn't care because we don't have anything to offer than Armenian barbecue we yeah. have Korovat to offer we don't have natural resources in you know, I mean, we don't have diamond mines like Russia does. The one does. thing we that we have... put value, which is hospitality, the one thing that we cherish the most as a culture, is the thing that is actually working against us 
and preventing us from surviving because that's what we do. We're hospitable people. We yeah. open our doors. We let people in. And that's our biggest mistake is because we let the wrong people in. All of our neighbors, all of our neighbors want to go into our homes with Ill, Ill intentions. So, and you know what? Has that stopped us from being hospitable? No, not at all. We're still considered one of the most hospitable people. Absolutely. We will, we will give, we will, we're, we would first give, give half of our food to somebody else when we're hungry, just so that we can show humanitarianism to the person as well. We, we have fables that pretty much say that somebody that is a traveler, you need to, to revere them because they're special, because they're traveling the world, and that you need to show them the hospitality um, that is, that, you know. And that's why we're, it's, it's we're, we're taken of, advantage of. That's why we're, we're a group that's been um, taken advantage of and slowed out stops. I don't know what's the right word for that, and degraded, um, taken advantage of, I mean, Yes. So it's, so it's, it's like a humanitarian, it's a humanity thing. It's a humanity. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, 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 it is. I mean, like, it, it's such a huge, huge humanity issue. And the thing is, is that whatever so far that has been able to be accomplished is because of the Armenian diaspora and the personal relations. A lot of Armenians, when the war broke out, and it was like, a switch turned on in every Armenian's mind of like, I need to do something and this is what I'm going to do. And it was as if Don't like, tell everybody Clay, but in. I wanted to, to this is so bad, but I really was like, oh shit, I really need to have a, an Armenian baby. Like, I don't care. Yeah. I, I just need, I was like, who can I ask? Which of my friends can I ask that I can like, get their sperm so I can have an Armenian baby? I'll have a baby with Clay, but I really want an Armenian baby. And I was like, who do I know? <laughs> <It's so sad. laughs> we, we, we pretty much like when the war broke out, everybody just knew what they need, instinctually knew what they needed to do. Like, because we've been and always told but, that the Turks will come back. We, we've all, all I've ever heard since I was a child was that the Turks came and you have to be ready because they're coming back. And sure as shit, this was it. Everybody was like, oh, fuck. We thought, we thought the world kind of got it together. And we're like, oh, no, we're just, this is all over again. We're starting from, from zero. And whatever we've been able to accomplish. And it was like, you know, um, it was like an ant farm where everybody like, you know, knew what they needed to do instinctually and, or, or like a beehive where everybody just was a worker bee. And if you, you knew if you had access to be able to fundraise, you were fundraising. If you had access to be able to, you know what I mean, get supplies, you were getting supplies. If you had access to information, like for me, it was information and the information warfare is online. How to combat it. How do you, you know what I mean? Like, and for a while, I was just on my own of, of like, okay, trying to combat mis disinformation, trying to find out exactly what's going on, inform people, uh, you know what I mean, like, uh, and help others that were in the process of, of, of getting information out there and amplifying other people's voices. And so it's whatever is everybody's strength, that's when they went to do. And it's the same way in Armenia as well. I was talking to a girlfriend of mine, a fellow filmmaker in Armenia, and she said that a way that, that everybody just mobilized was so fascinating and so 
like inspiring that we kind of went, oh shit, nobody gives a fuck. And we're the only ones that are going to save ourselves. And all the political clout and PR that we thought we had internationally had evaporated. And whatever we were able to accomplish was on, was the diaspora itself and its relationship. So if I knew somebody that was in PR, if I knew somebody, I would contact them on my behalf and have them start working it. There was, there's lots of lawyers that are Armenian. So a lot of, um, uh, and businesses that are Armenian owned in Los Angeles and one business, which is um, the Papillon uh, Bakery, they took up the boycott of Nutella. Nice. Um, another business nice. that is um, a, a lawyer, a law firm, took up the, the, the misinformation and mislabeling and fraud labeling in food, whereas Armenians are trying to boycott Turkish products. And what they're doing is um, they're sending Turkish products to um, Britain um, and slapping a British sticker on top of it and it obscures where the country of origin is so when then you peel back you see that it's a turkish product but a lot of the information is so it's fraud and food labeling so a law firm has taken up fraud and food labeling another law firm has taken up um the the drone parts the company the the organization that i'm working with uh, their main focus in the beginning was drone parts. And the, the reason I got uh, um, with them is because while I was doing some research and trying to gather as much information so that I can document and know and make a movie about this later on, um, was I found a list of all the drone parts and the companies in, that make them. And I sent it to a friend of mine that was working with them. And I said, hey, do you know I found this list? And it was kind of like everybody helping each other out. Mm-hmm. And it was it was inspiring, but at the same time, it's sad that it had come to that, that right. we had no political clout, that for 30 years we had wasted the resources that we could have had because our country was run by oligarchs. Um, a little bit of history. Armenia had a velvet revolution two years ago where they peacefully transferred over in government. I'll talk a little bit about that later. That's just a whole nother thing and how that led to this war and how for 30 years this war had been put off, put off, put off. And it came to the point where it was a powder keg situation where everybody's attention was turned on to American politics and everybody was dealing with COVID and the entire world's attention was just strewn away. So it, it was a perfect time for the war to kind of explode. So for 30 years, they could have been prepared. We were being told for 30 years, the Turks are coming. I don't know why the government was, it wasn't in on it that the Turks are coming <laughs> and that you need to have a proper military. You need to have proper, you know, um, military training and regiments and equipment and we training. Should probably, for we should probably, I think it's worth mentioning that there are, there are Armenian speaking Turks in Armenia. Let's just say that. And that is a, that's opposition. So there's, um, by by Armenian speaking by Armenian speaking Turks, what we need is is um, there's a quote with Garagin Nejdeh, and he was a general in the in the, um, the first World War and stuff, and he's a national hero. He pretty much said that the threat of is not the Turks, but is the internal Armenians that think and act like Turks. Mm-hmm. Um, so for us, somebody who thinks and acts like a Turk is somebody that is violent, that only cares about themselves, that is only protecting their own skin and their own gains in it you know i mean like their own goals and their own pockets it's not thinking about communally so if you're an armenian you have to think communally um for us it's more it's like okay what are other things and we have a lot of national 
shame of like, you need to act appropriately. You're bringing shame to the nation. So, um, sorry, I'm, I'm just going to let that hold. Uh, yeah. <laughs> hold sound. <laughs> hold sound. Hold for sound. <laughs> sorry. It's instinctual right now for me. <laughs> hold for sound. <laughs> it's so funny. All three of us just like, oh. yeah. So, um, <laughs> they had uh, the, the Turks, um, and uh, before the Velvet Revolution, we had oligarchs who were running the country. And by oligarchs, I mean people who have privatized companies and privatized so much of the country for their own pockets and their own gains without thinking about how people are going to be. There's been a mass exodus uh, um, from Armenia. So that's why a lot of the Armenian diaspora right. is larger right. than the actual native population in Armenia. So the diaspora right now, I've seen numbers fluctuate anywhere from 6 million to 10 million. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the population of Armenia is around 3 million. So if you have a diaspora that is twice the size, let's say 6 million, why? Mm-hmm. Why couldn't those 6 million people live in the country? And, mm-hmm. and it's because it's been of, of an economic fleeing because people are not able to make money in their country. A lot of the businesses have been turned into monopolies and everything has been privatized. And everything that is being privatized, there's no competition there's no room for small business and if, and if you try to put a had tried to put a small business before you would have had people come in and uh, persuade you to sell your business to them or otherwise you would be persuaded it was very much run like mafia style like either your brains or your signature is going to be on the contract type of situation so a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of people who did not have the political or financial clout left the country and established amazing, successful diaspora centers. Some of the most successful diaspora centers around the world. If you think about Armenians as a diaspora, we have that because we've had it for hundreds of years, um, but it's out of necessity mm-hmm. because first we didn't have a homeland, appropriate homeland, and then afterwards our appropriate homeland was being ransacked by crooks and criminals, you know, like actual people that sold off their sold off Armenian lands for their own financial gain and didn't that was writing down that they were buying equipment and military equipment but instead it was pocketing the money and getting shoddy equipment so Armenians were fighting with 19th century spirits and were using 20th century equipment Mm. in the freaking 21st century how do you fight a modern war with antique weapons like mm-hmm. literal antique weapons from the Second World War, <laughs> like <laughs> Russian weapons. How do you how do you fight that? And so it's it's a losing battle. Not a lot of the Armenian military needed to be modernized, but modernization takes money. Right. So what happened with that money that went into the pockets of oligarchs? So I have to say that the losing of the war it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't just one reason it was so many things compounded on each other the apathy of the international community the the financial and pr incentives for for the blockade of information and disinformation the years of of economic um, congestion and rape of, of natural resources so many different things led up to the situation it is now and a lot of Armenians right now are in psychological shock and they're going through the five stages of grief. Mm-hmm. And this is universal. Any and all Armenian you talk to and ask and, and you ask them like, how are you doing? And it's a lot of like, 
same as everybody else because it is everybody feels the same way. There's no happy Armenian right now other than the oligarchs um, because they're thinking that they can do a coup right now and take back control. So those are the only people that are happy right now and the Turks. So that's why we say internally Armenian speaking Turks. It's referring to those oligarchs, the people who made the situation possible and compounded the situation in such a way that led to where we are right now. So basically the Armenians who weren't staying true to the Armenian true culture and voice, the authenticity yes, of, yes, of everything. Yeah, yeah. They, could, they, yeah. they abdicated. They so abdicated can, yeah. their responsibilities and their national priorities the and diligence. their own culture. <laughs> yeah. Due okay. diligence. That, yeah. Just so yeah. much abdication. If we can go back to when you went to visit the indigenous portion uh, of, of Armenia. I'm going to start crying again. Um, it's welcome. It's okay. Um, let it out. Can you describe like what that feeling was if, if it had a voice to you? I felt like my ancestors were speaking to me. I felt so connected to the land. I felt like this energy just coming out and I felt like I belonged. I felt like this is where I belong in the world. Like I'm, this is part of my people, my history, like I felt connected. And I've never felt connected like that in LA. And I've grown up in LA, you know, a lot of my formative years were here. But I've never felt like the pull, the energy. I felt content there. I, eating the food in, from in Atah, I've never tasted a cucumber as sweet <laughs> and as cucumbery mm -hmm. as I did over there. I never, the food, the people, the, people. the, the hospitality, the, the people, the people were, I can't describe when I say like, okay, so um, William Staroyan had that, has that infamous quote that, you know, the famous quote that says, when two Armenians meet that they will create a new Armenia. And that spirit, you know, I've experienced that spirit of like finding each other. And, and it's just like this little spark that you feel whenever you find another Armenian somewhere else. And it's only like a tiny little spark, you know, but it, over there, I feel like it was the waterfall of that spirit there. Mm -hmm. Like I felt so like, like, I feel like I went to where the fountain of youth is. You know, it was like the fountain of Armenianness. Mm -hmm. I felt like I was drinking from like the rivers of Armenianness. Like, I've grown up with uh, Mastido Sadian. My mom loved art, so she had a lot of natural uh, paintings and stuff, uh, uh, or, or replicas of paintings of Armenians and, and Armen of historical Armenian lands. And so I felt like I was in one of those historical paintings. That's how it felt. I felt like this is my people. Like I was like, is this what other people feel in other countries in their home countries? Like, is this what everybody feels? And yeah, I think that's what it, I can't. It was, and I felt like that 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 Armenianness, that Armenian spark of like when you, two Armenians meet somewhere in the world, and it's like that tiny little, it's like a drop of that, and that drop is feels like it was rivers and rivers of it, and it was concentrated there. And it was that spirit 
and it was like nothing else. And I told Inga when we were there, I was like, I fell in love with Artsakh and I want to go back. I feel the pull of, the, of it. I felt it more than I felt it in Yerevan. And I was yeah. born in Yerevan. Mm-hmm. You know, I felt more of that spirit over there than I did in the city that I was born in. And I can't, the people, I can't describe it. It was like stepping back in time. There's no villages in America. There's no like villages in the modern world. There's no understanding. It's like in a little townships and hamlets and all that stuff, but like actual village villages. Mm -hmm. That's what it had there. It was history. And the people were so pure and honest. Like it wasn't, that's why they're getting modern it. society hadn't polluted it yet. Taken advantage of because yeah. of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the people of Artach, we consider them our Spartans. They yeah. have that Spartan fighting spirit. They have that in them. They are our Spartans. And it's just it's horrendous. Uh, me and Inga, when the war broke out, we when we had gone to Armenia, when we had gone to Artach, we had a driver and he was my age and he had three sons. That was five years ago. And his oldest son, I think at the time, was, I want to say, 10 or 11 years old. And me and Inga were talking about it. And she was like, do you think that he's out there fighting? I said, I'm sure he's fighting. And I'm sure his, son, his oldest son is there with him. And it was, he was our driver. And he was the one that was from there. And he had taken us pretty much to everywhere that he, he, he wanted to, to take. He was like, at the end of it because we it, it was like four days and he was our driver for four days and we'd been spending so much time with him he would pick us up in the morning and just take us to different locations all throughout and tell us about the history he was also somebody that had served in the army um, pretty high up and so he was talking about like the war that the first war that happened and how the you know what had happened and the areas and and, and so on and so forth and the spirit and his spirit of it it was just I can't describe it. And Inga asked, like, do you think he's there? And I'm, I'm hoping to God that, that he's okay and so his sons and his wife, that they're okay. Um, yeah. Obviously, uh, my aunt still has his contact information, Inga. So, yeah, okay. We should yeah. Probably yeah. It's going to be hard. Maybe she can reach out. You know what I mean? If we need to sponsor a family, maybe we can sponsor his family. Yeah. Inga, is there anything you'd like to say? You don't have to. But... I know it's hard. I, I know that it's hard. I don't understand. It's hard. Yeah. Like, okay, I don't cry and I've been crying. Like, yeah. Inga knows me. Like, I, it takes a lot for me to cry and I've been, like, breaking out. Stop crying. That's crying. the problem. I've just been crying. Like, it's, I've, it's, it's just been such a, it's taken such a psychological toll on me, for sure. It's, it's, you go through the, like, you literally go through the stages of grief. And I remember, like, I was on, on, like, the anger stage, and I called Inga, and I was just so angry at the situation, and I was so angry with everything and everybody and the disinformation and the Armenian people. And it's like, don't be susceptible to propaganda and all that stuff. And then like, three days later, I ta- called my dad to see how he was doing, and he was in the angry stages, and I just let him, like, yell at me for, like, two and a half hours. Mm-hmm. To, for him to get his anger out and it's you go through the stages of it and right now everybody is oscillating between grief and depression we're not on acceptance yet 
okay. Some people might be, but we're not. On top of it, they they attacked during a global pandemic too. When everyone is yeah, that was a purpose. Yes. Yeah, and the COVID has exploded in Armenia, and that's another thing too. It's like, well, half of the hospitals are filled with uh, veterans, you know, that are missing limbs or having, you know, things amputated and. Mm you know, an entire generation of conscripts. And the conscripts' age is 18 to 20. A lot of them are, like, an entire generation. And if you, like, calculate the numbers per capita, we've lost as many people as America lost in the Vietnam War. If you, ca- like, statistically, if you calculate it that way, that has, this is de- devastating us uh, on a generational level. Mm-hmm. And the boys that are coming back from the war need like deep psychological help because of the trauma that they've gone through and it's not just a regular war trauma it's the psychological aspect of of having psychological you know, warfare a, aspect of it the, yeah the psychological warfare aspect of it, of it having people be decapitated having civilians be shot in their homes civilians that are sick and, and not there was an incident where the Obuzman from Artsakh, which is the human rights Obuzman for the United Nations, it's like an advocate, where he showed um, a, a, a man who was um, had a, a, was physically how do you say it? I forget the word. Hashman Daminga. Uh, disabled, 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 yeah, who was uh, physically disabled, him and his mother were in their house in the village, and it's not like they're fighting, it's not like he can hold up a gun, he can barely hold up his hand, and he was shot through his hand, um, which means that he was holding up his hand as in to show that that I'm, 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 I am unarmed, and he was shot, and his mother was shot in their home, and, um, like when you have those kinds of things, when you have a grandfather being held down and decapitated while he's alive and begging for his life, and you have that as an aspect of war, and you have that, and, and the men that have gone through that and they're coming back, how are they going to be psychologically okay to have a family, mm. to raise a family? How do you not pass on intergenerational trauma right. to the next generation? How do you prepare them for the coming wars? And this isn't over. This is just a ceasefire. This, is, this can erupt in March when the Treaty of Severus expires, which is 180 years ago, when the land of Nakhijeva needs to go back to Russia. Or in five years, when Russian peacekeepers are going to be leaving the area, and if they don't leave the area, it's extended for another five years, or indefinitely, you don't, we don't know what's going to happen. Like, how do you prepare for all of that and psychologically and not raise up a, a nation of, of people who are re-traumatized? We were, like, a hundred years after the first Armenian genocide, we were coming to terms with the international intergenerational trauma that had been passed to us through our great grandparents and grandparents that mm-hmm. went through the first genocide. And we were right now just reconciling that and trying to figure out how do we not pass that on to our next generation. And this happened. So it's just, how do you not do that? 
how do you raise a nation that is psychologically healthy and able to compete in the international marketplace into the world when you've just had a war and you've just had that generation, the youngest generation, and we call them the gold generation, the golden generation, because they're the generation that made the Velvet Revolution possible. They are the ones that pretty much helped carve out the new society, and then they went two years later to go and defend it. Mm-hmm. And now they're coming back, and we have a niece that is the same age as them, and she's got classmates. Like her entire half of her class is gone. The men are gone. And how do you reconcile all of that? And how do you move forward? And that's why it's like everybody's under psychological shock. How do you not pass? How do I not pass on this trauma to my children? And you know what? For a very long time, I was really upset at mom. I was really upset at mom for making me go to all those marches as a kid and I just remember hating like being made to remember a war that I had nothing to do with and I just remember we didn't understand the threat we didn't we didn't understand the threat because it wasn't explained to us yeah like it was kind of like because the trauma that they went through and the most that they could process was to to warn us that the Turks are coming again that was their that was the only thing that they were able to verbalize and to explain. If they had a like a vocabulary to be able to explain it to us differently, then we would have. And I was angry. And I was angry. I was like, why do I have to keep doing this every year? Like, I don't want to be Armenian anymore. And I feel so yeah. fucking guilty for saying that now that I wanted to have an Armenian baby. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, listen, mm-hmm. you are the mother, you will have an so Armenian baby. Guilt, so much guilt, so much like I should have been more Armenian. I should have, I should have talked more Armenian. I should have, I just, I, I got radicalized overnight. <laughs> it, it, it does. If you weren't radicalized before, you're radicalized now. Yeah. If you were not super Armenian before, you are super Armenian now. And right now, my thing is, is that before I was involved in American politics, I was like, I'm going to do this and X, Y, Z. But this has pretty much woken the diaspora and given yeah. everybody a purpose, mm-hmm. has given them a focused purpose. Right now, the only thing that matters to me is Armenia and the Armenian people. That's the only thing that matters right now for me. For me, it's, it's first and foremost too. is that. And, and the reason for that is because the world doesn't care. If the world cared, then I would have room and space to care for other nations, other countries, other peoples. Up until now, it's been like solidarity. BLM, I'm standing with you guys. My Swana communities, I'm standing with you guys. I'm standing mm-hmm. with this and I'm standing, I'm standing, I'm standing. And one time came for people to stand with stand me, with us, with yeah. us we were alone. Well, so yes. this has radicalized a, a, an entire generation and the diaspora is waking up. The diaspora okay. has been complacent. We have been just, you know, working for ourselves, supporting our families over there. We have been doing this. But right now, the goal of every Armenian diaspora and every Armenian is for Armenia. 
whatever you're doing as a business, as a job, it right now the number one goal is for the betterment of Armenia and Armenians. That is not something. Give all of my Armenian students 50% off. Sorry, yeah. I, I, I did. Yeah. I did. I was like, you're immediate, you get the immediate 50% off. Yeah, well, it's, mm -hmm. it, it's kind of like giving the oxygen mask to yourself in an airplane before you take care of someone else. It's yeah. like, like putting yourself in, in that process of like, you know, healing and, and everything that you have to go through in order to be even able to help other people. Yeah, and it, it, it's like my focus right now is before I wanted to make movies that were, you know, thought-provoking and pointed. I wanted to contribute to the cultural fabric of society. And I, that, that, that was my focus. Right now, my focus is Armenian movies. Mm -hmm. I need to amplify Armenian voices. I need to amplify Armenian characters. I need to amplify Armenian directors, producers, writers, anything and everything that has an Armenian tiny bit of it has to be there. If I'm making a movie and there's no Armenian character, I will put in an Armenian character. If I'm making a movie and I am casting, I will call in the Armenians and give them a shot at audition. And I actually did that. There's a mutual friend of ours, um, uh, Anush, which is Inga's friend. And I think you know Anush also. I met Anush when I was doing a, um, a college film and we were casting and I got her headshot in and I was like, She's not appropriate for the role, but she is Armenian, and I'm going to call her in for an audition. I'm going to so I like I'm uh, from now on. I'm going to have to. I always call in Armenians if I see them going for something. I will call them in for an audition. I will give them that opportunity. If I see an Armenian that is a cinematographer, I'm going to go try to go with him. If I see an Armenian that is a gaffer, a grip, a crew person, I will try to hire as many Armenians as possible. My focus has changed. My focus is for films that, that um, show the Armenian perspective, that show the Armenian voice, films from, uh, you know, I mean, Armenian diaspora, films that highlight the Armenian experience in the diaspora, anything and everything that has to do with an Armenian, I'm, that's pretty much going to have to be my focus now. Now I want to contribute to the cultural fabric of society by making Armenian films. Yeah, I need to amplify Armenian voices. Yeah. Because we don't have a voice in the international marketplace. I'm tired of being asked what an Armenian is instead of where Armenia is. Right. If you could give Armenia a voice, if you could define it in the international marketplace, what would it say? Mm -hmm. That we exist and that we have a history. And right now matter. it's existence. <laughs> we matter. That, that right now it's the existence. Armenians have contributed so much to like in, All in lives forms matter? Of yeah, really? Okay. So where are you if all lives matter? Where are you? Okay. Yeah, if all lives matter, where's all the all lives? Um, if Christian lives matter, like where's where's that coalition? You know, like where are all those other coalitions or those organizations, those groups? So right now, if I can give Armenia a voice, I'm going to say that they matter, that we exist. Mm -hmm. um, we don't have any of that in the international marketplace. We are more than just the genocide. That's another yeah. thing, too. Oh, yeah. A lot of the Armenian films that are out there uh, that have Armenian voices are only about the, f the first genocide. Right. You know, and there's there's not a lot of movies that yeah. are coming out that just give the Armenian experience of I what is it like yeah. to be a diasporan. I understand a little more why, like, Vahik wanted to make the film that he made, too, with Tenny, 
to yes, kind of let's talk yeah. about that a little Remember, bit. Remember, <laughs> you are see. I when I was talking to Vahik in the beginning, and 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 um, we were discussing about the film and the importance of the film and stuff. And I kept telling him this film is very important for our culture. It's important for our community. And it wasn't that because of the, the story is like earth shattering, it is amazing or anything like that. But it's the fact that it's just a representation of a diasporan in a country. It's your immediate experience. I mean, like... an experience that it's like, it's not that different, but at the same time, we still try to preserve our culture. Um, when he's dancing around with, to the Armenian music in the kitchen, mm -hmm. I'm the one who picked the song and I'm the one who <laughs> put it there. And I was all like, you need to be dancing to Armenian music. If anything, this mm -hmm. is the one time that you need to have Armenian music in it. Definitely. So. Yeah, it, it really opened up my eyes, just like being on set, being one of the only people not speaking Armenian, because I could really... <laughs> Like I, I, it was I, kind of unfair to you. I'm sorry. No, like it was, there was a few people. It was okay. It was totally okay. But I, like because I I didn't understand the language, I I definitely was able to understand the energy, and it was beautiful. And you you just have such a reverence for your culture that I just have no way to even identify with. And so I think it's 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 out of necessity. Yeah. That 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 reverence is out of necessity out of the threat of, of disappearing. There's no threat of Americans disappearing. There's no threat of Italians or French or any other country that, that is big of disappearing, but there's a threat of Armenians disappearing and Armenia disappearing. You know, like, does any, like, do you know about Assyrians? Like who Assyrians are, where their country would be? See, like, and they've been a, a nationless people for a very long time. Same with Kurds. You know, like the Kurds, they're nationless. And that threat of being nationless is just, it's, horrif it's horrific, horrifying. It's that existential threat. And because of that threat, it's like, well, you have a bigger appreciation for your culture, your food, and what is being Armenian? It's, it, you know, it is a genetic thing, but at the same time, it's also a culture. Mm -hmm. So what are the aspects of that culture? It's the language and the food. So you have to learn the language, you have to speak the language, which our moms pretty much did. And Armenians in the diaspora does not matter when you were born. You can be third, fourth, fifth generation. If you have strong ties, you speak Armenian. Mm -hmm. That is part of you being Armenian is knowing how to read and write. And that is one of the things that isolated us genetically as well is that we had a written language where we, had our own, we have our own alphabet. And our alpha, um, until then, until the, the Master of Mashtots, uh signified and said, this is our alphabet, until then, we were using the Turkish alphabet, we were using the Greek, specifically the Greek alphabet, but written in Armenian. Hmm. So you use the Greek letters to write in Armenian, like sometimes Armenians well, uh, use we, we Latin letters. <laughs> yeah, yeah, transliteration, uh, which is wrong, actually, and I agree that that transliteration is wrong. Um, but you learn the language, you learn the alphabet, and you learn that. And that's one of the things that keeps the culture alive is the speaking of the language and reading and writing. Another aspect is the food. So a lot of us, us pass down our traditions, our foods, you know, whatever we make. And that is something that a lot of Armenians learn how to cook. Yeah. You know, that's part <laughs> of our uh, culture. Armenian men, if you do not know how to barbecue, you are not considered a man. At age, I remember our cousins, the, the male cousins, 
at like 13, they were already going, you know, 12, 13, they were standing next to their dads next to the, the fire pit um, or the mangal, which is like the, the barbecue, the Armenian barbecue. And they were standing next to them and they were learning how, when to turn, you know what I mean, the kebabs, when to turn the spits, when to cook, when to pull off. And that culture gets passed down. Um, Armenians love to celebrate. We don't, we like to drink, but only one in groups. So we need a reason to get into groups, to have a party, to drink. Nobody sits and drinks alone. Like if you sit and you drink alone, you're considered an alcoholic. So if you want to drink, you have to have like three, four people come over at least. So it's in a group setting. So in order to do that, you cook the food, (laughs) you know, so so any and all reason for a get together and getting together is in those parties. We don't do it now as much as we used to do before. You get together in those parties, those dinner parties, you would cook, you would eat the food and everybody did the thing. And then you would sit around the dinner table. You would sing Armenian songs. You would sing old Armenian songs. And then if anybody knew poetry, what they would start to recite the poetry. And then you start dancing and you would dance Armenian um, in the house. Um, uh, my husband, Jeff, he's like, you are the guys are the only people that I know that actually dance at house parties. <laughs> like, <laughs> like we actually get up and dance at, at house parties, you know, and dancing is also another form of our culture. So we yeah. keep the cultural things alive. And that is part of Armenianness. And Armenians are Armenians regardless of where they go. If I move to the moon, I'm, I'm not going to be a moonshin. If I move to Mars, I'm not going to be a Martian. I'm going to be an Armenian. So if I move to Italy, I'm not going to be an Italian. I'm still going to be an Armenian. Right. And that is the thought process of every Armenian around the world. We are Armenian first and then everything else second. We, I'm, I'm an Armenian first. I'm an Armenian filmmaker. I'm an Armenian sister. I'm an Armenian diasporan. I am an Armenian first. Number one is that. And so what does that entail? Do I speak the language? Yes. Do I read and write? Yes. Do I cook the food? Yes. Do I do the dances? Yes. Is there any other uh, cultural aspect left of that? Whatever it is, I do. I do. I do the traditions. I do. I do some of the, the, the traditions that are like, that are considered pagan, like, um, every February since I got married for the past 10 years I would go and I get the fire and bring it to to the house for um the jumping over the fertarendes which is when you jump over the fire um we play the the pagan games of like vatavad which is like the big water fight we play um you know we have the um Zacht, which is like the flowering festival so there's certain and things. We also have like, uh, salt uh, cookies. Salt cookies. That's right. She knows uh, the salted cookies. Yes, yes, yes the salted cookies. <laughs> so, so a lot of that, that, those things, even wherever we are, we still celebrate. We still celebrate Armenian Christmas, which is January sixth, because we're we go by the old Gregorian calendar. We celebrate the old New Year, which is like the thirteenth, the fourteenth of January. You know, we still we still have cultural things that we celebrate that are part of our culture, that are that's part of being Armenian and part of Armenianness. And we're and that's how you passed it on. Um, so when Inga says I want to have Armenian babies and stuff, I know that, like, even though I'm not married to an Armenian, which is, you know, big her- heresy on my part, um, I 
I know that my children are going to grow up being Armenian because I am the mother. I am the one that is going to be speaking the mother tongue. I am the one that is going to be teaching them the traditions, the music, the songs, the poems, all of that. So it is my responsibility to pass it on to them and to instill the love of their country and then love of their people and love of their culture. And for them to have the love so much of that, that they will pass it on to their next generation. It is a responsibility of every Armenian to pass on Armenianness. And oh, my parent, my mom did that. Anybody want to help me break this to Clay? Yes. <laughs> How do I tell? Oh, I'll talk to him. We'll, we'll, I'll just uh, we'll just we'll just send this podcast to him whenever it is. Uh, <laughs> we'll be like, uh, it'll be a surprise. <laughs> He'd be like, hey Clay, start making Armenian babies. Let's say. Yeah. <laughs> We're gonna have He's to gonna borrow. turn into an honorary Armenian. He needs to start learning the Armenian language. You know, start speaking Armenian. Well, the problem is so, he's not genetically Armenian. I can have a a, a child with him, no problem. We need we need a little genetic infusion, Inga. We yeah. need a little <laughs> bit of genetic infusion, just can, a little bit. He can have, he can carry the Armenian spirit inside. Okay, <laughs> y'all. Just as long as your kids marry years. Armenian. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Just oh, make no. sure that your kids marry Armenians, and then oh, no. you know what I mean. I'm that's kind of folded, <laughs> folded back into you know the Armenianness thing. That's that's all. Poor mom. <laughs> do you see what I put her through? Not dating an Armenian. I'm not going to do that to myself. <laughs> <laughs> all right. No, yeah, yeah. Uh, so we're, we're we either have to you know teach Clay Armenian or teach him how to make baklava or. <laughs> <laughs> No, I think I think that your child will be Armenian just by you being the mother. Now he is. Now, uh, yeah, before I was like, yes, I'm, I'm an Armenian. Amer I'm an American Armenian. No, now all yeah. of a sudden, all but of a sudden, I'm, I'm not American. I'm Armenian. Yeah, but just me, like our friend, we've been friends for what, maybe three or four years now. Yeah. And so just me being around you, like, I feel like your Armenianness has like rubbed off on me. Yay! Like, you know, like, <laughs> because we're we're constantly talking about it. We're constantly like I'm constantly absorbing what's going on. Um That's yeah. true. so that has a ripple effect, I feel like. Okay. Yeah. So so don't put too, I, I mean, too I, much. I, yes. I don't share put... with you as my like as you know, because you're my friend and I you're probably also you're just getting to know me as an individual, but so much of that is I guess dipped in Armenian that it's uh -huh. hard not to have a salted cookie. <laughs> <laughs> or or have a spread of refreshments when I'm there for like five oh, that's minutes. True. So that's true. That's true. So that's a very Armenian. I, I didn't know that was an Armenian thing. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't know Armenian. that was an Armenian thing. I thought everybody did that. Like what do you mean? Okay, so you invite somebody over for tea. You just give them a cup of tea. That's it. Nothing to accompany them. <laughs> or if they like, just come you to your house that? for like and like no reason, like no tea or no you know dinner. But when they do come, you know that's it's, it's there. just there. That's so funny. I don't see. <laughs> I I don't think of that as an Armenian thing, but I guess it is. I think of that as like that's yeah. the, the normal thing. That's what you're supposed to do. Totally. To your guests. You're not like, giving yourself because that's what you saw enough <laughs> yeah you're not giving yourself enough armenian credit i don't i guess so i guess so yeah, yeah yeah i guess so i'm i've always i've always um i i've always battled my identity more than my sister did for sure um i definitely 
during my developmental years, I, uh, it was easier for me to deny being Armenian because it was harder to hold on to it. It was mm -hmm. easier for me to speak English than to speak Armenian. So I would fight it. And so my mom would mm -hmm. fight me. And so I ended up going to Armenian school for 12 years, Saturdays, Armenian school for 12 years to yeah, know how to, to, how to identify. And I, and I fought my mom and I didn't want to, you know, be like the Armenians and I didn't want to uphold the Armenian, uh, what did you call it? So the, the national, like your disgrace, you know, and, and uh, almost, how uh, do we say almost? Uh, Almost the national, uh, what is it? Shame. The shame. Like yeah. shame is a shame. Shame is a big uh, like component of like shaming people into acting appropriately, shaming people into um, conforming to society and stuff. I rejected that long a lot we too did, when I was yes, younger. We did. Yes, we 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 did reject that. However, I I I didn't want to accidentally shame the country because i felt that yes, sense of responsibility to bring shame to the country to bring the, so i would i would say that's not my armenian side because i know that my armenian side would perhaps bring shame so i wanted to not bring shame to the to to the culture so i was denying my armenian identity so i that, think everybody goes through that thing i i mean i went through the same thing here growing up you have to try to reconcile what are you? Because you are too American for the Armenians. Yeah. You are too Armenian for the Americans. You are an immigrant, but you're not immigrant enough because you've been here for a long time, but you're still an immigrant. So that, that whole thing of like, and I think a lot of Armenians go through that where you kind of like reject the Armenianness and you embrace being an American. But at the same time, like I, I went through that uh, at like senior year of high school and stuff. But then I didn't get anything I wanted or needed from the non-Armenians. I didn't get that community feeling. Mm -hmm. I didn't get that feeling of like I'm belonging to a group, like a, like a social group or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So for me, being rejected was kind of like, it, I don't know if it was rejection or if it was just not fitting in and not finding a voice. So I kind of gravitated back towards Armenianness, and I think mm -hmm. that's where Inga that's where was kind of, I think, because see, I thought you would, you would come back a uh, lot sooner than you did. Yeah. I thought you would come back at the same age that I came back oh, at, like, 20-ish. No. no, 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 see, no, no. Your, your rejection was a lot longer yeah. than mine. Yeah. Yeah, so my, my, yeah. and a lot of Armenians go through this, too, like, if you're born, especially if you were born here, and you have, like, this also, dual yeah. identity, and yeah. who do you go for and what do you do yeah. I'll, tell you when I came like back. I'll tell you when I came mm -hmm. back when I started doing Armenian theater and I was like oh now that's my purpose I am I have to be an Armenian uh, uh, entertainer because there's a lack of Ar Ar Armenian artists and I remember the uh, reason why I rejected Armenianness is because it it wanted me to reject being ac an actress it was it was it was not an acceptable avenue to pursue to, the arts were not acceptable. It was not lucrative. It is not financially. And we, so therefore we don't know anybody in the arts. And the arts community is incredibly small in, in the Armenian community itself. Everybody knows everybody. Like me and Inga know a lot of the famous people because we work with them because the community is like, you know, super tiny. So we didn't know that there was room for us in that community 
So then you kind of reject it because that's what you want to do. And if you want it to go into the arts, you have to reject Armenianness so that you don't bring shame to your shame people. She so. don't bring, a sh- you know what I mean? It's shameful. And Armenians are very, that's very t-toeing. socially <laughs> conservative. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so it's being socially conservative, it is not acceptable to be an actress. An actress kisses people. Mm-hmm. An actress does scenes that are, you know what I mean, like slightly open. And by slightly open, I mean like sleeveless. Yeah, you know, Ingrid, so, can, you, can you talk about your immigrant uh, series? Yeah, that was interesting. So, um, immigrants was the first drama shot in America that was completely Armenian, run by an Armenian channel. You know, it was being about the Armenian American experience. About the Armenian immigrant experience, yes. Um, so it was it was the first of its kind. It was being shot here. Uh, Armenian, full Armenian cast. Some Armenian famous people, actors were coming from Armenia to do this because it was such uh, a revolutionary time in, for Armenians and, and entertainment industry. We had the channels. This so was 10 had, years ago. This was 10 years ago, yeah. Um, prior to that, the reason why I ended up on the show was because I was doing mini theater. I was doing Armenian uh, like theater. And quite frankly, at that time, there was absolutely nothing happening as far as cultural. There was like organizations were doing, you know, little community, AGBU was doing their own community theater and, and, and it had a following a little bit, but nothing like on a grand scale that was producing uh, theatrical productions one year after another. And so Vahik and I, when we started, it was the beginning of a very interesting journey because the entire culture was feeling depraved of Armenian arts. And so it did very well. Can I say something about that, please? Yeah, Um, Armenians love the theater. So Armenian has a big love of theater. They think theater is like, you know what I mean? Like true, like Shakespearean level of like love and Mm -hmm. obsession with theater. It's pretty much the same relationship that the English have with theater, how they revere it, how it's, you know what I mean? Like that's where true actors go to. So we have that, but because of the economic situation and the downturn and everything else, a lot of Armenian artists had to abandon their culture, that side of them, just to go and be able to to survive and make a few dollars. So a, a lot of the theater and that, that thing of like, you know, getting dressed up. I remember when we were younger, my mom always made us go to the theater, went to concerts, went to shows, went to plays. That was another aspect of, of, of our culture. So there was this vacuum of, of the need for it and the want for it. And Vahik filled that need. The Vahik, problem with Vahik, well, I have, to, I have to mention something else. Vahik, as an Armenian coming from Iran, Tehran, which a Muslim country, doesn't allow them to sing, doesn't allow them to dance, doesn't allow them to drink. So he cannot go back to his motherland where he was born. And so that's another element that he's an Armenian trying to preserve Armenian culture in a Muslim country that bars them from expressing and being an actor and and dancing out in public and singing in public. Um, Another actor. who was doing theater here. Oh my God, this is so hard. He, he went back to his homeland and they, they took out his eye um, because he was an actor here. Um, uh, you know what, who I'm talking about, right, sis? And what do you know about oh. it? That comedian, oh. he was like that. Uh, they, they took out his eye because he went back to uh, Tehran. 
He had a thick beard. Uh, he had a thick. Oh, the one that, yeah. Yeah. So to, to even do Armenian theater um, meant that you had For to. For Vahik, it's a different thing, yeah. too. Yeah. Because Vahik is, is. So there's, because again, of the diaspora and how you know, I mean, uh, spread out. We are the, the diasporic enclaves. Uh, one of them is Persian Armenians. And we call them Persian Armenians because Armenians have been living there since the time of Persia. So that, that community has survived, you know, I mean, thousands of years, honestly. So uh, Persian, Avahik is Persian Armenian. They have their own dialect. Some of the lexicon is different from uh, us. We are Hayastansi Armenians, which is people from Hayastan. There's also um, Eastern and Western dialects and Western diaspora, which is all the Armenians that were from um, the Western Armenia, historical Armenia, and their dialects are different than our dialect as well. So that's why the so, depravity of the culture, feeling the need to see theater. And so Vahi comes along and I come along with him and his, his, his troupe, and we galvanize an entire I want to say five, six years, but those five, six years, it was, I cannot describe it to you the way for it to be accurate without sounding grandiose. Yeah. So yeah. Vahik would, you know what I mean? Like it's c c considered cultural, you know what I mean? Community theater and stuff. It's nothing on the huge grand scale, but whatever he was doing, if he was doing this, let's say in, in New York, he would be considered an off-Broadway phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah. Because the way that he was able to get people to come in every single day, he would have shows that say it was a month long show and every and there was a show every weekend. Mm -hmm. People, the show would start at 730. People would line up at 430 outside the auditorium in the rain to get to get in in the rain. I saw that in the rain and I was like, these people are crazy. Um, he, people would line up and they would come not once, but twice, but three times because it they were the laughing Titanic. so much. Yeah. They had, they had missed <laughs> half of the jokes. So they would come in to, to hear the rest of the jokes because they would have been laughing so hard and missed the, on the first round. Like the way he was able to write and stuff and some of the things that he was able to say was incredibly poignant and important to our culture. But, you know, like a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. He was able to do that for Armenian society, um, for the diasporic society here. Mm -hmm. um, he had a little bit of notoriety in the Persian Armenian community because of the Persian plays that he did. He before he started doing per, uh, Armenian plays, he was doing plays in uh, the Persian language in He was Farsi. doing um, not play. Well, yeah, he did plays too. He was doing a variety show, Persian variety show. Yeah, variety show. Um, yeah, videotaped variety it was show. Videotaped, yeah. Yeah, and that was a uh, that was a trend too within the Armenian yeah. arts community where like the comedians and stuff theater theater wasn't up to par. There wasn't you know people didn't have money, but they would make a video and that video would make the rounds and it would you know have been displayed and have like a screening of the video and then afterwards the vi people would make copies of it and just pass it around and stuff. And Vahik made those kinds of videos as well. He still has a few of them. Yeah, uh, it's think, all online yeah. now. Um, so yeah. that's how I ended up uh, as a cast member to one of the very first. Um, You're forgetting you know, something. Am I? 
You're forgetting something. Oh my! Well, okay. So my sister got a position because, well, my sister. Oh, I don't want to tell the whole story, but let's just say my sister ended up being. Uh, I, I I let her know that they were looking for an AD, uh, and I won't I won't I won't mention how I found out that they were looking for an AD because I was not on the I was not I was not cast in the beginning. The role that I, I I played, I was I was recasted, or the role was recasted, and I'm gonna have to tell you that when we're not on a podcast. You can't have it online. Yeah, it's not gonna. <laughs> okay, that's fine. let's just say okay. So um, I was watching a lot of the Armenian uh, shows and on on there, and at the same time I was uh, studying film and I was you know doing my master's program and stuff. And I would get very upset because they were making elementary mistakes in, in their filming. They, you know, I was like, don't they have an adequate person? Like that's, you know, like somebody that t- pays attention to continuity, somebody that pays attention to where the sun is coming from so that you don't have a sun on one character that's coming from one side. And then when you flip <laughs> the camera over, the sun is on the other side of the character. You know, certain fundamental things oh, in filmmaking. Uh, and film I said, instead of from 101, and I said, you know what, instead of, complaining about it I need to put my money where my mouth is and start working on them and as soon as I made that decision and I said it out loud and to myself uh, I think like Inga forwarded me like maybe a few days afterwards Inga forwarded me this link that says hey they're looking for AD for somebody that's going to be producing type of person that can you know what I mean like do whatever I was training to do Mm, you just said, okay, fine. That. Let me go and yeah. You oh, know by what the I mean? way, Put my money where my mouth is. Sona was like, I, why would I? Why would I work in the Armenian community? It's just uh, I, I won't. I wouldn't. She didn't feel like she wanted to go. I remember I was like, we should start in the Armenian community. It's easier, and then we'll jump into the, the American market. She was like, Mm-mm, no, you're wasting your time. Uh, I, you just need to go to the American market. So she ended up doing that, and I ended up doing the opposite because I was like, it's going to be easier for me because I've been doing theater since I was nine and I hadn't made it in the American market. And I was like, okay, I guess there I'm was no Armenian it. film market for me to go to Inga. Well, I meant like, but I remember having that conversation. Okay. We I should, have to say this. this okay. Before I came onto set, they were not using a slate. Yeah. <laughs> I had to demand a slate. Okay. So when you have an AD demanding a slate, it should tell you something about like the situation yeah. of, of the, and, and that's why she said, like, why would I waste my time uh, trying to start an industry when there's already an industry that I can just start working for and put Armenian names out there? That's what, when we were kids, it was like, we're going to be the first Armenians to ever get Oscars. Like, I don't know how we're going to do it. Uh, <laughs> I just remember she was like, there's, there's no Armenians with an Oscar. Even. And I was like, this was before Cher, by the way. Um, <laughs> yeah, was, I was going to be like, wait a minute. <laughs> yes, this was before Cher. <laughs> and she would, she would sit down and she would wait until the, after the movie was over. And I was like, what are you doing? She's like, I'm looking for a YAN last name in the credits, you know? And there isn't any, you know? that means i was like yeah they don't take it near me and she's like no that means that we can be the first ones that means there isn't any armenians that we're going to be the first armenians and we thought we're going to be the first armenians to ever be in america i thought i was the first armenian ever in in america (laughs) in the film industry you're the first Armenian ever in the film industry ever yeah so So, i um, just remember that and then it goes back to when we first came because there was no armenians around us so yeah. it, it came back to that. We didn't see a representation of Armenians. 
you know what I mean, in the media. So it's like, okay, then we have to be that representation that we don't see in the media. So I started on uh, working on, on that, and I said I'll put my money where my mouth is. Um, I'll use my education to, you know, help shape the, the Armenian film market and the Armenian uh, television market. Um, and that's how we both ended up on the project together. Uh, I was one yeah, of the um, I worked on, yeah, and she was yeah. uh, the AD, and she, I stayed on for an, a year, and then they, they, you stayed on for a, two years, sis, and then we ended up... Um, um, I did 75 episodes of yeah. it. Wow. It was a hundred and something episodes and I did seventy five of those hundred and something episodes. And then I, uh, I went I got off onto the spin-off. Did you you didn't you went you did Yeah, I didn't do to... the spin-off. I oh, was wow. too I was too tired and traumatized from yeah. them <laughs> to continue working with them. So yeah. I I was I was not being appreciated for the amount of work I was doing because I was literally doing the work of like four or five people where I was set dressing, mm-hmm. coordinating wardrobe um producing scheduling ading you know what i mean running interference permits all of that stuff was just you know it was me a script supervisor two cameramen and a boom operator wow so can you imagine like the amount of work and stuff that was on my shoulders Mm -hmm. so I, it got to the point where I, where I was just like the negativity from then. I was just like, okay, if you guys think you can hire somebody else to do my job, by all means, please go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> so. And that's why they don't have any productions now. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, but we're not, listen, something is better than nothing. And we all had like everyone that was involved in this uh, project were, were in the same idea. Okay. Yes. This is our opportunity. We're going to do it. Unfortunately, the people who are, the funders, the financiers, the financiers weren't able to support those grandiose uh, expectations. Expectations or, and yeah, demand. Yeah, so then demands, yeah. So they they see Hollywood, uh, they see that we're in Hollywood, and they're expecting Hollywood production, but they don't want to give Hollywood prices. Right. So of course, there's going to be quality issues. Um, I had to explain that diagram so many times. That, <laughs> you know what I mean? Something can be cheap fast and good it is not going to be all three so pick the two that you that is the most important for you (laughs) if you want it fast and cheap it's not going to be good you know Mm -hmm. so if you want it good and fast it ain't going to be cheap Mm -hmm. so I had to explain that to grown men (laughs) so many times yeah that you know but it is for what it was it was a big change and it was kind mm-hmm. of like put the stamp that there is a, a an artistic and a community and a film community here in Los Angeles of Armenians in the diaspora and that we have something to say so from that aspect it was good and it you know it didn't hurt that Inga still gets recognized from it um there was well, a time that I couldn't go anywhere in Glendale and stuff because I looked like Inga <laughs> so people thought I was Inga and in when Inga would get approached, she would say, "No, no, no, that's my sister." Yeah, I would lie. I'd be like, "Oh no, that's not me. That's my sister." Yeah, she said, "I'll say hi to her," you know. Because <laughs> then you know what happens is they want to discuss the show with you and ask you why is it that you ended up writing that note? Didn't you know that this person wasn't gonna like with that note that you would have sent? I was like you realize you're talking to a character, right? That is about a character, it's not real <laughs> life. It's not, it's not me. And they, they would want to come and try to understand the character's choices by discussing 
what I could have done thought it was real people. <laughs> what could I, what I could have done differently, <laughs> you know? Um, and they were like, but why? I don't understand. Why did you end up going? And like, so a lot of people that didn't want to talk to me, they wanted to discuss the script and ask why I did my character, why they did what they were so invested. Everybody, every single Armenian was watching. Every single person I knew was immigrants. Everybody would turn on immigrants, 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 immigrants. It was like this, you know, uh, this, this, this new thing. That it was a phenomenon. Yeah. yeah, it was a phenomenon. Everybody wanted to be a part of. And uh, I just And it was one of the first two um, serials, episodics, that were being screened. And it was being, sh and the first and only one that was being shot in the United States. Uh, since then, a lot of other ones have been shot here. Um, like one of the ways that I met some of my friends that are in Armenia that are fil fellow filmmakers was through the was through immigrants and through future projects, you know, working with them. Um, through immigrants, I met, and I'm still friends with a lot of the the filmmakers there, like the crew. Uh, some of the directors that were brought in, and some of them were working on the old Soviet style of perception of filmmaking, and they needed somebody that had grown up in the United States, had gone in and worked on, in the U.S. market, and knew and understood the rules and regulations of the U.S. market of like, well, you need a release if you're going to broadcast somebody's face. You need a release for XYZ. You need a location of release for XYZ. You need somebody to, to go and talk to police and, and you know what I mean, like for permits and blah, blah, blah. That was me. That was, you know what I mean, that was my purpose. So they, they needed somebody to control these 40-something, 50-year-old men. I was, and I was in my 20s when this was happening, and it talk about misogyny talk about like mm -hmm. cultural norms and gender roles and going against those gender roles like me and Bahi had a blowout and one of the times like full-on shouting matches you know what I mean like mm -hmm. like we had to be separated what ended up happening was as a result 10 years later um, I was approached by an American filmmaker who wanted to make an Armenian film and um, and we were the first Armenian film in the history of the LA film market or uh, the film festival to have an Armenian film. Um, unfortunately, I would have loved for that to happen through an Armenian director. I still would like to have- Not enough money. Of course, of course. And I, that's why I understand. I, I feel like just like you should, if, you're, if your character is, requires uh, an Indian, I would much rather an Indian play it instead of some, let's say, a different culture playing that. I, I, I believe in representation, so I feel like uh, I would much rather have an Armenian director being the first to put an Armenian film in the uh, LA film market, but I'll take what I can get. It's, it's a start, and I feel like same thing with Armenian, other cultures, you know, if it requires, an, you know, if it's an Asian character, then don't have a white person playing an Asian, Asian, have an Asian, you know, character. Scarlett Johansson is not Asian. Exactly. And I didn't want to say that because I didn't want to nitpick her, but yes, that's, the, that's exactly what I was thinking. Same thing with directors. I feel the same thing. Like, yeah, because it's, it's representing the Armenian voice that your director is not Armenian. It's not going yeah. to translate as Armenian. Yeah. But, um, but, one thing I've noticed, like, especially like some of the Armenian films that I've been watching that's been coming out recently and stuff, 
a lot of non-Armenian directors give a new perspective to Armenian voices. So mm -hmm. if you have the writer that is Armenian, if you have the characters that are Armenian and stuff, I think there's one film that I really fell in love with and the director was a was a Russian girl. Um, it, it was called If Only Everyone, Yete Bolora, mm -hmm. uh, with Mikhail Bogosyan. And sh I don't think if that was to be shot by uh, an Armenian, would have given it, it the same breath and same appreciation to the culture as what as it would have been that that, that it's been shot by a non-Armenian. So yeah. certain aspects of it, I do agree that it needs to be an Armenian voice, but I think the Armenian representation does not need to be so no, completely I, and wholly the same. At least the, the very first film, I would have preferred for it to be that, but I'm not saying that I... I granted. It's the first, yeah, yes, granted. It's the first step, absolutely, you know? I, I, and, and there's, I, certain, there's certain metrics that do I, do I understand where you're coming from, but uh, from a certain standpoint of it, um, I don't think that the director is as important as is the producers, as is the writer. So if you have one Armenian voice in there, I think mm. that's, yeah. well, at that that, time, that's what is required. The director was the producer and was the, you know, unfortunately. And fortunately, that director slash producer slash writer listened to other yes, Armenian yes, producers. Yes, 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 this is true. And, and that gave it an authentic flavor yes. and an unauthentic voice to it. Yeah. So even if you don't have an Armenian thing, an Armenian writer or director, you can have the Armenian voice still be present by giving a space to producers that are Armenian, to other writers, or, you know, I mean, just being open and listening to suggestion that is a representation of, of the culture. Now, um, one thing that I have no room for is for cultural appropriation yeah which yeah. lady gaga did yeah so mm -hmm. that is you know what i mean for it, it goes outside of celebrating the culture and and it starts to be more exploitive of it yeah without actually you know what i mean giving a voice to anybody in the culture itself yeah so yeah because i don't think anybody knew that that was unless you were armenian that that was armenian uh motif that was being used well, it, it does, it's, it's, so the, the, the music video that we're talking about is the 911 music video with Lady Gaga. So Lady Gaga, before the war happened, I, I think like maybe two weeks before, released the music video 911. And, and I did a little bit of research into it. So the director is an Indian director, but he loves Sergei Paranjanov, which is an Armenian mm -hmm. filmmaker. And Sergei Paranjanov's most favorite, uh, famous uh, film is The Color of Pomegranate which is very much like Fellini, which is like motifs and little visions and, mm -hmm. and you know what I mean? Like vignette, vignettes. <laughs> vignettes. Yeah. Uh, tongue tied. Uh, vignettes uh, of it and, and stuff. So it's like little images of it. So he loved the color of pomegranate. So he proposed the you know, film, uh, the color of pomegranate and the motif of the color of pomegranate as an underlying theme of the music video. And in order to tie it in, what they did is at the very end, it says Armenian Film Festival, and it has the poster of the color of pomegranates and a couple of other uh, famous Armenian, internationally famous Armenian films. But the entire movie itself has taken motifs and vision, uh, visual aspects of, from the film, the color of pomegranate. So it is our culture that has been represented in the color of pomegranates has been repurposed for Lady Gaga's music video. So everybody was ecstatic. They appreciated her. 
they even had an Armenian uh, caution tape that police tape was written uh, in Armenian caution as opposed to in English. So they had like Armenian flavors and stuff in there. The, the artistic director of it, uh, the creative director is an Armenian. So they had uh, an Armenian flair and voice in there. But after the, uh, after the music video came out and the war broke out, not one peep came out of, of Lady Gaga. Not from her representation, mm-hmm. not from her management, not from her music label, not nobody yeah. said anything. So That's she exploited our culture. Yeah. She exploited our culture for her fame and for her music video. But when it came down to amplifying a voice of saying, hey, these people who two, three weeks ago I released a music video are being genocide. And the thing is, The Color of Pomegranates is a movie about the Armenian genocide. So it's like you're taking a movie, but, and it's like, and the genocide is physically happening right now. And you're not saying one peep to be like, I support the Armenian people. She could have had one thing on Instagram and it would have been blown up in the Armenian community have gone viral in the Armenian community her music video went viral and we were very proud and we were happy she was using that and she was doing that but no nothing and that is that is where I have no room for I don't have any room for cultural for that kind of cultural appropriation I will share my culture I will have people uh, I'd love dressing Arme- non-Armenians up in Armenian ethnic clothing for you guys to see what it feels like. I put my husband in Armenian clothing. You know, I mean, like we took uh, pictures when we went to Armenia um, of a traditional Armenian wear, which is called Taraz. She's seen mine so he- in, my, in my house. Yeah. Yeah, Inga's got a picture too. We were all in, the, in that, uh, we, we did the, the traditional wares and stuff. That I will share. That is a celebration of my culture. But when you take my culture and an aspect of it, and then you don't acknowledge when a, a, gen, a literal genocide is happening mm-hmm. again, yeah. So that is that I don't have room for that. So, um, so you know, the same thing happened with um, we talked about Cardi B, but um, Elton John was another person who got targeted by the bots to bring down his support. So he made it. He texted his support, and then uh, through pressure, he had to so, retract it. He had to retract it. So that's how far this, this arm reaches uh, of propaganda and disinformation and misinformation. If you watch the CNN interview with Aliyev and the type of rhetoric BBC. that Aliyev, is it BBC? Was BBC. It, yeah, BBC, okay. Uh, and the entire rhetoric verbatim is Trumpism coming out, spewing out, uh, where Thank the you. BBC fake news he's like like you have the ceasefire you have broken the ceasefire and he says no uh it's uh, it's what you heard uh and uh, she says uh no but uh personnel was on the ground and after our journalists were there our journalists were there and they saw it and we have evidence and he literally says yeah that's fake news so it is and i and i and i say this again they're taking a page out of uh, American uh, politics, uh, current politics. Anything that Trump has done to undermine American democracy is the weapon of choice that they're using to completely discredit Armenians trying to defend themselves. Because they have so, seen that it's been effective. It is. Yeah. It is very effective. Yeah. It is yeah. very effective. Yeah. You if know? I, you, you know, you... The, the audacity of Aliyev saying that we are causing genocide to his people when they're the aggressors, 
uh, gaslighting mm -hmm. or uh, it's uh, saying, uh, hey, uh, I'm, uh, I'm being uh, bullied. And then the bully saying, you know, oh, I, I'm, I'm the bully here because I, I was provoked. So I, I'm, I'm only, you know, it's not only are we being blamed for what we're not doing, but the things that are the atrocities that are being committed to us, we're being, we're being framed for genocide for this. Like, are they really using that word that we're creating genocide on their people? That's because of the cojones that Trump has allowed Aliyev to borrow his own, his, his balls so he can so, use his own. Yes. Okay. So. They're flipping. The Here's the thing with with Trump. Okay, there's a there's a video circulating around um, where Trump and I think Trump got into a bit of a, a so many moons ago. I can't even you know it was several scandals ago um, with Trump. Uh, so Trump's connections to Erdogan and Trump's connections to Aliyev. So um, Trump um, tried to Aliyev have the, a Trump I'm Tower sorry. in Baku. Aliyev is the prime president. minister. Pres well, he's been president for 15 years. No, oh, he's a dictator because he's been passed down from his father. Haydar exactly. Aliyev so was the president, which was part of that. He was a KGB uh, asset and member. Afterwards, he was the president of Azerbaijan. And then his son, um, um, Aliyev, right now is um, his son. Uh, Haydar Aliyev was his dad. So it's been passed down. And his wife is the wife vice president is the wife is the oh, wife oh. president yeah. wow yeah the, the wife is the vice president and she's from the opposition party mm. so how do you have a wife from the opposition party uh be the vice president and she was assigned as vice president she was not elected there was no election thing so he it is a dictatorship but it's a full-on controlling dictatorship so it, it, part of their caviar pr was trying to get international companies, organizations to come and open hotels, blah, 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 blah. One of the things was the Baku Hotel, the Trump Tower in Baku. They were building it and building it and building it and they built it. And there's videos of Ivanka Trump Where talking is Baku? about how, look, Where Baku is the capital of Azerbaijan. Okay. And it's on the, uh, on the sea. It's on the east border. I mean, uh, yeah, west, uh, eastern border of the country border and it has a lot of oil fields and you know it's, it's an oil country this is where they're getting a lot of their money from so they what was they saying that baku is, is they were doing that and, and ivanka over there is like look at the beautiful baku look at my view you know like look at how beautiful it is and everything else so ivanka was was touting at it because they were trying to get um trump tower off the ground and it was being built and it was construction and then all of a sudden construction stopped so who knows what happened to that? So in the process of the caviar PR, he had connections with Trump. Trump made a video for his son-in-law, which was a pop star, a, a Azari pop star. So there's videos of Trump wishing Aliyev's son-in-law, happy birthday, you couldn't be the best dude, blah, 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 blah. Okay, so if you have Trump making videos for your son-in-law, how good are your relationships? When you're cutting funding from the rival nation of 100 million in military aid to 15 million and upping the military aid to 120 million what is the relationship there is a trump tower in turkey and he wants to make a trump tower in ankara there's a trump tower in istanbul so uh, what is the relationship there if there's compromise because of kashokji Mm -hmm. uh, the journalist Khashoggi that was murdered in, at the at the Saudi Arabian um, 
embassy, embassy in, Turkey. in Turkey. Is there video or uh, is there any corroborating phone calls that ask for permission to go ahead with this from the Trump administration that can be used as compromise? Is there? Uh, what is the relationship with Erdogan and Trump? When Trump was newly elected and Erdogan came in to say hello and congratulate him on his um, presidency, um, what happened when Armenian and Kurdish American citizens were protesting a quarter mile away at a park away from the Turkish embassy and Aliyev on his car ride over spots them in the distance and then instructs his own bodyguards, his personal bodyguards, the personal bodyguards of a head of state of another country to beat up those protesters, and they did. And then uh, the uh, Capitol State Police comes in and arrests who? The bodyguards? No, they arrest the protesters who are American citizens. And Trump doesn't make a freaking peep about that. Wow. And that's the beginning days of his presidency. When Michael Flynn is an unregistered Turkish lobbyist lobbying for Turkish, for the nation, lobbying for Turkish interests, who who you assign as your head of national security. What is your relationship? Mm. When Michael Flynn is plotting to kidnap and relocate and hand over a Turkish dissident who is a professor in Michigan, Yulen, Mm -hmm. what is the relationship? What is the hope of America doing anything? For Armenia. So, yeah. yeah. We are an an inconvenience. We are an inconvenience. That's what it is. Armenians have nothing to offer other than our hospitality, our chorovas, and our chash. That's all that we have to offer right now. And great um, economic advancements in our diasporic centers. Yeah. Anywhere the Armenians gone in as a diaspora, we have helped that nation go up. The the green coloring on the dollar bill, the green ink that is used on the American U.S. dollar bill that is printed and minted, that is invented by an Armenian. The fact that you watch television instead of black and white is because of an Armenian inventor. The fact that you can go and get an MRI is because an Armenian invented the MRI. We have contributed to society on such grand scale but no human society on such grand on global scales and we're not being acknowledged and we're in the threat of being annihilated and nobody makes a peep because nobody cares well i'm going to try to make as much peeps as i can and And i appreciate (laughs) you you amplifying you doing this is so it's so much more than a lot Can of Can I tell you what it is? You doing this, honey, makes me feel like I'm doing something. I've felt so helpless throughout this whole process. Mm. I don't have the money. I don't have, I, I, I don't have the connections. The fact that you sent me a letter from Diane Feinstein. <laughs> that dinosaur. <laughs> it means a lot to us like seriously the fact that you I took time out of your I day something. i've done something if i've just told one person who didn't know especially in the beginning i was like sona i feel i feel like a traitor i feel like i have guilt yeah we're comfortable in the diaspora 
I feel I, I have guilt. I feel um, remorse and shame and just you being interested and helplessness. That's the part that's the hardest. And the fact that I can have a friend, not only that I bring to the Armenian culture because you worked on it, and the fact that you- Whitney, if you, if you stayed in Glendale, there's a high chance you would have married an Armenian man. Just FYI on that. And I'm not, I'm serious on that. Um, I have a friend, his name is Jason. We've been friends. I met him in New Orleans and he's been friends with me and he was in our class with me and, and, and Jeff and stuff. He, I introduced him to Armenians and it was like, okay, he's most likely going to marry an Armenian. <laughs> I think he's most likely going to marry somebody from my side of the world and stuff. And, and he, like, he's an honorary he Armenian tried. like that. He and, tried. He tried. Uh, we did. We he dated for a while. He dated for a while. I mean, it's actually, he ended up with an Iraqi girl and there's Iraqi yeah. Armenians. So, so if we, if we dig enough, maybe there was an Iraqi, <laughs> she's got some Iraqi Armenian in her. <laughs> you know, because of our diaspora and stuff. So there, it's, it's, we're recruiting you, All right. and, and most likely, if you want, we will probably find you an Armenian husband. All right, an, 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 an honorary Armenian, I'll take it. All we need to do no, is we, take you to Armenia, no. and you'll see. All we like, gotta do is we gotta say, Oh no, see, this is Tenny. See, she's in Tenny. She's all good. <laughs> she's she's, on the she's an Armenian. <laughs> yeah. Well, we should probably wrap up because we've been talking for about three and a half hours. Yes, we have. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, but, okay. all, but all of it is very important. Um, and I'm glad that we were able to discuss all of that at length that I think. And comes... thank you so much for give us, uh, giving us a voice and, and giving yeah. us a platform to really speak about it. And that's the big thing for me, too, is just like, how do I get all this information that I have out there into the world? And, yeah. you know, it's like I'm not famous. I'm not this. I'm you know famous adjacent at most <laughs> you know like, yeah well this is a baby podcast so it will grow so so hopefully it will reach the people that need to hear it actually that's my hope is that the people that need you know if some if one person just just goes in and starts yeah. doing some research about yeah. it just educate yourself of what is going on educate yourself on yeah. history educate yourself because all of this is like this geopolitics affects so much more you so much more than you actually imagine and, and can fathom like it yeah. affects policies it affects where your tax dollars are going it affects the future of your country if a war breaks down and there is a high possibility of war breaking out again this can be the freaking like the catalyst that starts the first world war that, yeah. or the catalyst that started the second world war this this whole thing this skirmishes this quote-unquote area is a powder keg it can blow up and people need to prepare themselves that war is coming that it is inevitable i'm just curious as to like if you have any recommendations for resources where we can stay informed particular like news sources i don't know that we can research um i'm there's certain news sources uh like i can't point to the traditional news sources anymore because the traditional news sources for me have been compromised but i would seek out armenian news sources i would seek out um things like azatutun which is freedom in armenian azatutun tv or um azatutun radio or azatutun.com um i would seek out civilnet.com uh, they have live broadcasts they have political analysis they have information in english languages um, there's a really good documentarian 
Um, he's on YouTube. He's uh, putting out like breakdowns in English about the, what's going on. His his uh, handle is Vagabondings. Um, he's a German um, dude who's got an Armenian girlfriend, and he's been documenting. There's a, a war correspondent, Emil. Oh my God, I forgot. Ens Ellison or Ellison. Um, he's actually been in Armenia on the ground. He's been like. Tom World for us, which was a journalist and documentarian in the first Armenian genocide. He's been over there and he's been showing boots on the ground. Um, I would start following some of the war correspondent journalists. Um, they're the ones that are um, that are independent, mm -hmm. that are not tied down to a traditional news company. Like right now, CNN Turkey is the one that is reporting, but CNN Turkey is reporting on the bias side of it right um there's a lot lots of uh, like armenia right now has opened all of his borders to journalists from around the world to comment and document of what's going on azerbaijan has not there's been an information and journalistic mm. embargo over there in azerbaijan there was a, a french um reporter that's pretty much said we are only allowed to show where we're brought to show and what we've allowed to film and so on and so forth. So I would go in for Armenian and Armenian sources and Armenian adjacent sources of people who are on the ground themselves um, that have okay. been um, honestly reporting on what's been going on. Um, Reddit has been an incredible source mm -hmm. of news every day. There is a, on the Reddit thread, on a mega thread, there is a um, an article that is put out with all, like an aggregated article of all the news in Eng with English translations. A lot of the news is in Armenian or in Russian, but it's been translated into English and given like little blurby breakdowns of what's going on. And it's not just for the war, it's just like what is going on in the country of Armenia in general. So it's like COVID update, has corruption information of who's being arrested and all that other stuff. Okay. Um, right now, a lot of it is dominated with news information about the war and the after effects of like the ceasefires and the treaties and all that other stuff that's going okay. on. I'll put some of those links so. in the show notes so people can click on them, mm -hmm. do their homework for yeah, them. Yeah, I'll try to get you the, 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 yeah, the names of the, there, there's actually like a little video that was posted by Vagabondings interviewing Emil, which is the other war correspondent. So they're interviewing each other of like what's going on and what's happening. Um, yeah, those are the news sources I would trust. Awesome. Okay, I, I usually wrap up with this question. Okay, if you... You can both answer this individually, but if you had a billboard that expressed your inner voice to the world, what would it say? It's wake up and pay attention. Mm -hmm. Honestly, it's, it's wake up and pay attention of what's going on in the world around you. And it's because it's very easy to get wrapped up in everyday working and trying to survive. And you don't see how you in you trying to survive, you're contributing to part of that. The, the uh, you know what I mean? Your tax dollars. The machine. Yeah, the machine. Try to see where you fit in that machine. And even if you can't stop that machine, maybe you can augment it. Maybe you can change the trajectory of it. Maybe you can add something to it so that the outcome is not so predetermined. Mm -hmm. You know, I would say wake up and pay attention. It's Ignorance is bliss. It is very comfortable to be ignorant. It is very comfortable just to be in your life and not know what's going on and not be bothered. But if you're paying attention you should be bothered. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, if you're paying attention to what's going on in America, you should be bothered. If you're paying attention to what's going on in the world, you should be bothered. Mm -hmm. It's not comfortable. It is it's definitely not comfortable. And, and 
sometimes you know you get lost of like what me as a tiny person can do but you everybody has a voice everybody has a space everybody can do something just by retweeting of what's going on retweet news articles that are factual Mm -hmm. read you know what I mean like tweet at journalists that are writing stuff that is propaganda tweet at news desks and but everyday regular people stop buying Turkish products yeah you know what I mean we are a Watch where dried apricots are coming. Most of them are Turkey, and I'm going to say indigenous Armenian land. Those are our so apricots. The, the, <laughs> Latin word for, for, the Latin word for apricot is fructus armenius, which means fruits of Armenia. Mm-hmm. So um, look at Ferrer Rocher, you know what I mean? Like boycott Nutella, because they've got farms uh, in uh, Turkey that grow hazelnuts, and those hazelnuts are being grown with child labor, uh, that our hazelnuts are being grown in a, you know, in an exploitative environment. And it's not just that they're buying it, that they're sending scientists there to try to increase the yield. So, of course, they know that child labor is being used in court. Of course, they know what's going on. Uh, boycott Turkish products, boycott Turkish uh, garments. If you're going to Zara, if you're going to H&M and you see something is made in Turkey, don't buy it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you as a consumer, you speak with your dollars. So right. vote with your dollars. Who are you supporting? What country are you supporting with your dollars? We have to be much more conscious consumers. Mm-hmm. You know, you the money that you spend, you're giving a voice to and you're amplifying those voices. And you are agreeing with whatever that country and that pol- politicians that are running that country uh, agree with. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's, you know what I mean? You're agreeing with their policies. So vote with your dollars. What about you, Inga? So, What's your voice say? There's this quote, and I, and I'll use the quote because I think I think history is repeating itself, and uh, therefore there are ample amount of quotes that happily uh, uh, apply. And I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel, but when you're complacent that about an about an issue, especially human rights issue, then you are contributing to the human rights violations. Yeah. If you if you are looking away, you, that is as bad as holding the gun, right? To me, mm-hmm. so I would like to bring the people who are comfortably complacent uh, that they are part of the problem, that they are they they are just as guilty of holding. I I'm not. I won't say the people who don't know. Yes, right. you have to get yourself. Yeah, but once you know and you're still like, hey, but you know what? That's, that's on the other side of the world. Hard, doesn't really, yeah. doesn't really affect me. Um, it's is really uncomfortable to even think about. So I'm not because it's gonna make me cry. Because how could it not? Right. So, uh, I would try to empower those people instead of shaming them for being indifferent. I would want to empower them. And I, I don't know what words I would use on, on a billboard to not shame them, uh, but to encourage them to not be- Where are your tax dollars going? Yeah. Everything's you know, connected, yeah. Yeah, if you don't yeah, stand what, what up are your for tax something, dollars supporting? if you're not standing up for something, then you'll fall for anything. These are all just mm-hmm. cliches, but because the reason why they apply is because we haven't gone past the same problem that we dealt with a century ago and you know and that's what I said uh, this is a, this is really explicit but I would say you know what happens when you deny genocide they come to finish the job that's what I would put on a fucking billboard thank you <laughs> sorry it yeah. says it all <laughs> no it's, it's it's like 
the, like what we're going to remember from this is not the people that stood, like we of course remembering the people that stood by up next to us is that all of our friends that didn't say anything right right now it is it is like a burning thing in my you know my social media that I have so many people in my social media so many followers so many this so many that and not like only a handful people cared enough and those were the people that were like super connected to Armenians that had like friends and stuff. But the people that I've worked with that are not Armenians, the people that, that have known me, if you know me, you know, I'm Armenian. And if right. you know, I'm Armenian, you know what the situation is and the causes yeah. and everything else. So if you know a tiny little bit of me, you know that I am Armenian and you've, you've worked with me. And if you know that this is something that is going on or it's like, if it is like, it needs to like spark some interest, it needs to do something where it, you know what the funny thing I is? remember the silence of my friends but you know what son I was there uh during the green uh, revolution you know when Tehran was going through what was it the Arab Spring I I was super super involved when Egypt went through their thing when Tehran and Iran was going through their their um yeah the 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 protests and everything else like protests. when the Arab Spring was happening Every everything else everybody was you know it's a change it's, it's supposed to be yeah. a change and you're going to be supportive and, and and this and that of it but Again, when the time comes and my friends are silent, are, are they my friends or are they just acquaintances? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, there's another you cliche that, uh, of saying like... No, it's the saying is, is we remember, we remember. Martin yeah. MLK. Yeah, MLK. You know, we were, we don't remember, like, we remember the silence of our friends. Like, yeah. Of our, we you don't, know, that's, we're, that's, yeah. I, I remember, that stands out so much to me that mm -hmm. it tells me that, do I need to invest in these relationships? Do I need to put in the time in these relationships? Do I need to give these people a voice? Why do I need to cast them if they don't give a flying, you know? Yeah. When, when in a time of need and you can't rely and you can't go on, like, what's the point? What is that relationship for then? You know, like, I'm going to be there as much as possible for you. And then when the time comes and I'm in need and you don't make a peep, even say what's going on, that speaks volumes to who you are as a person. Yeah. And how much you value me or non-value, don't value me. Yeah. So, right. thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, yes, seriously, you guys. like thank this you. is yeah. like this is freaking phenomenal. It was, and... it was therapeutic for me. I, I needed to cry it out, and <laughs> I, I, I and, I, and I won't stop. You know. I, I... Thank you for sharing it. I've, I've, um, yeah, yeah, no, I've, I've, I don't. I think I've cried more in the past two months than I've cried in my entire life. Yeah. Like. Yeah. That's that's. Like and and the whole aspect of it is just. And then I horrendous. feel bad because then that's what they want, and then you know, like I but feel. But you still have that, to mourn. Yeah, and that's 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 the catch twenty two where you are not comfortable in any of those emotions where you're like, I just remember feeling Sona just saying like telling me that you know feeling the survivor's guilt is valid, and I was so ashamed, and I didn't I didn't even have a name for it. I didn't even. I just had hard feelings and I just didn't know what to call them, where to put them, what to do with them, who to talk to, how to make sense. You know, it was just, I, I felt, I felt like they had won because not, I didn't have to be there for them to have affected you, have affected me. Yeah. And so the psychological warfare part of it is brutal. Yeah. It is. And I'm, I'm still, you know, it's still very drop of a hat. I'm just like, blah, blah, blah. 
Um, that's Every, the part that's getting to me. That's the part that's getting to me because I want to be stronger. So I don't want it to get to me because that's what they want. That's what, that's what the enemy wants. But be, being strong is not, is not just being, you know what I mean? Emotion, emotionally separated or anything like that. Right. Like, yeah, you know, being no. strong is, is, is your continuing emotions. and persevering. Yeah. yeah. In, in spite of those emotions and using those emotions as motivation, Fuel, you know yeah. what I mean? Like I can sit and cry or I can use that as motivation for me to write a movie mm-hmm. to, you know what I mean? Yeah. Write a script to turn make your, something turn your pain into tangible, something. Yeah. Turn, turn your pain into paint. Yeah. Turn your art, turn your broken heart into art. Turn your poison into medicine. Yeah. Like that's a b- very Buddhist mm-hmm. thing to say, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be honest. I haven't been successful. Um, I've let it. Kind it's of it's just... not an overnight thing. It's yeah. not an overnight thing. This is a, this is going to be a long process. This is going to be months, if not years. This is going to take us a while for, for us to like really digest and really like analyze and go through it right now. It's just, it's the trauma. It's the initial trauma. Right now, it's like we have a leg that has been cut off, and our focus is to cauterize the wound to stop the bleeding. That's what our focus is right now. Afterwards, we can talk about rehab and walking and using a stick and all that other stuff. It seems like now is right now is accepting that it is happening. Yeah, yeah, I know. And you're doing, you know, I can't imagine what that's like to have something happen when it's been a like such a fear for so many years. Yeah, and then it happens. Yeah. Yeah. it's it's so it's so weird and when when you look up the term existential threat and like the meaning of it and it's like it's right there you know it's not something theoretical that can happen it's like immediate and that's what it is and dealing with that it's it's so much dread that i can't describe it's being physically ill of reading mm-hmm. news that makes yeah. you physically nauseous. Yeah, yeah, that's the hard part too. It's the it's it's not it's just the psychological the it's the physiological. It. Yeah, it is it is definitely like I'm gonna have to go right. and 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 lie down for the next two hours to recover from from all of this, so I can just go back to. Well, yeah. Well, when you think about like DNA and how it's like passed down, epigenetics. Yeah. yeah. So like you you're already dealing with a lot of that. Yes. Yes, there's generational, yeah. and then that, and then you're processing new on top of it. Yes, yes, yes. And yeah. so it's this layers. is intergenerational trauma that right. is perpetuating, and now it's a new intergenerational trauma that 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 we will have to digest and and psychologically prepare for. But the one thing that is important right now is that we have access to mental health that yes. our great grandparents yeah. didn't. Yeah. Right. We yeah. have we are the the diaspora that our great grandparents did not have. Can you and, imagine and, and all of this names. happening and having yeah. nobody speak anything about it? Not even having your own diaspora to say anything about it. Not having your own diaspora go in and write the articles and go in and, you know what I mean, pound on doors and, and demand the boycotts and all that other stuff that, is, that the Armenian diaspora has been doing so far and sending in the monetary help and the aid and the food aid and the, you know what I mean, the actual physical medical aid and everything else. Armenian diaspora is going back there. Our doctors are going there, our therapists are going there, our mental health specialists are going there. Anybody in the diaspora that is, has any resources to be able to help our people right now are in Armenia. I have friends that are asking me if they need to go and learn military training and arts and how to shoot so that if anything else pops off, they, need, they can go back and defend. 
that is the situation right now. I was honestly, before the war started, I had a friend of mine asking me if I knew how to shoot. And if I knew where they can go in and can get military training here for like six weeks. So if they needed to go to Armenia, they could go in and wow. have the military training to be able to go in. Uh, me and my girlfriend were joking that like um, I shoot uh, like I like a marksman type of thing. I enjoy it. Um, sniper shooting. And I was like, well, I can go in and be a sniper if I need to, if I need to go in. And every Armenian had that thought of like, what can I do to go physically and help to be a tangible physical help? Because donating and, you know what I mean, like well, doing so all far. of this did yeah. not did yeah. not feel tangible enough. Yeah. I was like, well, I can go in and drive a car and be transport. I'm a good driver, you know, like I, I can totally do off-roading and all that other stuff. Um, so you have Armenians thinking of what can we physically do? Yeah, and true. because and it comes from that that point of like helplessness of like needing to do something and not having it be done for you, and it's like okay, well I will roll up my sleeves, and it's and a lot yeah. of the the mentality in the diaspora was like if I need to go and fight I will go and fight, you know I yeah. will go and protect because there's nobody else coming to protect, and that has been awoken in the Armenian community like everybody who I talked to that is Armenian even before if they were apathetic. If they were like, eh, yeah. I'm Armenian in name only, right now they have a purpose. Yeah. They, they've woken yeah. up the, the, the Armenian diaspora to, to be much yeah. more active and to be much more, take an a more active role in the country and to take a more active mm -hmm. role in our culture and in our yeah. communities. There's Which been also, so many. It'll also help amplify, yeah, amplify to people who have no idea about any of this. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen a surge of Armenian student associations at the college collegiate level that has mm -hmm. like pretty much exploded. Um, when I went in, the the collegiate level of the Arme of the Armenian student organizations were concentrated only in the Southern California and California campuses, and maybe in the Boston to New York campuses, but that was very select. Now it's all over. If there's an Armenian university, there's three Armenians who are going to get together and support mm -hmm. an Armenian student association. And that's true for Armenians around the world. If there's yeah. three Armenians together, they will get together. They will, number one, the first thing they're going to do is build a church. The second yeah. thing that they're going to do is build a school next to it to teach the yeah. language. And the third thing they're going to do is create a community center so that the kids can have somewhere to go after school that is connected yeah. to the church. Well, that, that goes yeah. back to what you were saying about two Armenians meeting. Yeah. 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 It's, and it's like that. There's like, I think there's like an island in Greece where it's like the population is 100 people and there's like two Armenians there and the two Armenians got together and they built a church on a tiny island so that they have their own little Armenian church. <laughs> <laughs> and for us, church is not just a religious center, it is a cultural center. It's yeah. like if you needed to find mm -hmm. an Armenian, you will go to the church. I know there's a, an Armenian community in Calcutta. Um, I know there's an Armenian community in Brunei. All I need to do is go and find the Armenian church mm -hmm. and they will keep me, they will get me in touch with the rest of the Armenian community. And that's, you know, that's the role it plays in the community. It's, it's a meeting center. Um, it, the funny thing was, is like the Armenians in the diaspora, if they wanted to get married to somebody, you know what I mean? That they would go to from one diaspora center to another diaspora center. And they're like, so how are you going to meet anybody that way? They're like, well, I'm just going to go to the church and see who's there, yeah. you know, and just take it from there and meet people from there. Mm -hmm. So that that is part of the the cultural part of the uh, thing awesome. of it of keeping the Armenianness is that as well. My my our parents wanted us to marry Armenians, um, 
And I, for a long time, I thought I was going to marry Armenian. I, I like I was I adamant before I met Jeff. But I was like, I only Armenians and that's it. Yeah, I was the opposite. I was rejecting it, and then I was like, and then I was like, no, I think I'm I'm done. I had a hard time, you know. Uh, I tried, and I just was like, there's always a missing link. Uh, and I was like, okay, it has to be an Armenian. So then I started to. To, to want to like just date Armenians for a while, which I did, and it wasn't, you know, it, it had to be somebody obviously from here, um, uh, American Armenian. Um, but my sister made a very good point uh, that she she said that you know you're you could be so Armenian that you recruit another non-Armenian into the Armenian culture, and and that is just as Armenian. And I was like, <laughs> okay. Well, why stop there? I got friends. Here you go, Whitney. Come on over. <laughs> I have go. to say, Inga, you've recruited more non-Armenians into the Armenian community than I have. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You've recruited like entire friend groups into the Armenian community. <laughs> this is true. No, my my thing is is that my Armenianness is not defined by who I marry, but my Armenianness is defined by the children I raise and the culture I continue to to be a part of. Mm -hmm. So I'm so Armenian and I love my culture so much that I'm recruiting people in it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And the first recruit is, is, uh, is my husband. <laughs> Fabulous. All right. I think this is a good place to wrap up. Um, as things move along, we can reconvene if we need to, to discuss yeah. further what's happening. But I think this is a good That's step. another thing with Armenians. We continue to do conversation <laughs> again and again. Yeah. So, like, when we first get together, we'll start to say, okay, it's time to go. And everybody would stand up and put on their jackets and then for another 25 minutes have a conversation standing up. And then they would walk to the door and say their goodbyes and the hugs, but then have another conversation <laughs> for 20 minutes. And then somebody would say, like, I need to walk you to the car. It's not a safe area, yeah. even though it's, like, in the suburbs somewhere. And then everybody would come to the car and have a conversation by the car for 20 minutes. We've just done that. It's, that, called, it's, it's called the Armenian goodbye. We literally call it the Armenian goodbye. Gotcha. So that's why Armenians are kind of notoriously late. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It all makes sense now. We don't want to say goodbye. <laughs> and it's so true. That is That has been the cause for me uh, uh, many times where I'm just in a good conversation. And like one more thing. And one, one more thing. And one more thing. <laughs> You just forget. You're uh, just like, oh, wait. All right, I'm going to yeah. go. So let's debate about the politics for a second, about the equality, <laughs> you know what I mean? And one more thing. Yeah, anyways. So I think we've said goodbye like four times already. So I think we fulfilled the quota. I think we're, 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 me and Inga are in the car right now on our way back. <laughs> we're just trying to give you a very Armenian experience. That's uh, all. Yeah, you know? <laughs> totally. I, I appreciate it. <laughs> All right, I'm going to stop recording right now. Okay. Thanks for listening. And stay tuned in to you.